0: Hello again, everybody, and welcome into another edition of Political Beats, a presentation of National Review. Find us on Twitter at Political underscore Beats. We're also over on Facebook. You can subscribe to our feed for new episodes through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or a right to NationalReview.com. Click on Podcasts to uh, see all the fine NR uh, uh, offerings, plus us, which, you know, fine or not, you, you decide. Uh, Patreon.com slash politicalbeats to help us out there, support the show, help it stay ad-free. We have entry-level support for, uh, well, support and voting. Mid-level for early access at a higher audio quality and then our upper level for early access, the higher audio quality, monthly exclusive content, remastered episodes, playlists, and more. You can find all of that and help support the show at patreon.com slash politicalbeats. My name is Scott Bertram. Find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. My tag team partner standing by as always is Jeff Blair. Jeff, how are you?
1: I'm actually doing all right, Scott. I'm I'm here finishing up the setup. I'm I'm directing the roadies to to get both drum sets into place, and uh, we're making sure that the amps are working. None of them are fried. Uh, do you feel like you need to do a sound check, or do we want to just go ahead and, and blast off with our tightly interwoven vocal takes?
0: <laughs> We've been working on this for so long. I think we're good to go. Yes. Yeah,
1: I th- I think we can just kind of do it in our sleep now.
0: Jeff on Twitter in at, dreams, in fact. Yes, at Esoteric CD. And our guest on today's program is, as I confirmed with Jeff before we press the record button, the very first actual sitting political figure to appear on the program. He is the 58th District State Representative for the state of Michigan, covering Hillsdale and Branch Counties. He's Andrew Fink. Andrew, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. We appreciate you coming on, making time, talking about our band before we get to the band, tell us a little bit about yourself, Andrew. You are a uh, relatively new representative here in Michigan. How did you come to decide that's something you wanted to do?
2: Yeah, I'm a freshman in the Michigan House. I re, as you said, I represent the area that we're in now, Hillsdale County and Branch County, which is the, uh, for, for the listeners out there, that's the Indiana and Ohio border region. I'm right dead center in the middle of the state on the uh, lowest tier of counties. And uh, this is the first elected office I've had, so I've, I've been in office uh what seven and a half months uh, but I had I'd been involved in politics since I was a kid I came here to Hillsdale College and studied politics uh, in college and uh, my first job out of college is working on a congressional campaign for our congressman Tim Wahlberg and I was also for a little while the district director for our senate our state senator Mike Shirky so I've, I've had different kinds of involvement before deciding to uh, get in the ring myself and
0: so far so good uh, I'm still standing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Andrew's band for today is uh, the Allman Brothers Band, covering a lot of years and a lot of live material and some studios' success as well, although it varied the longer the band went on. We'll get into all that on today's program as we tackle the Allman Brothers Band. Andrew, we return the floor to you, though, to uh, tell us why you love the Allman Brothers, how you got into them and why other people should care about this music.
2: Yeah, I, I love them because they uh, they 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 rest at the intersection of of all forms of American music. You know, there, famously there's a country element that comes out in their biggest hit, uh Ramblin' Man, which I'm sure we'll talk about in some detail. Uh, but really prior to that for at least for Greg Allman and Dwayne Allman, uh the, the band's namesake, uh, you know they had been into r&b Dwayne, as i know we're going to discuss played on a bunch of r&b records and uh and obviously they they became a you know the foundation of southern rock and, and a classic rock uh you know radio staple with things like whipping post and midnight rider and what have you so as i've gotten older and sort of settled into uh what my musical tastes are it's kind of Plugged In Americana is where is is where I kind of live, and the Almonds. That's not how I got there, but that is probably why I've stayed with with the Almond Brothers as a, as a favorite band. How I got into them was, <clears throat> I think, I, I do not remember for certain the first time I heard them. I, my my I have two I have conflicting memories. They both can't they can't both be true. <laughs> One is that I picked up a, uh, a blues masters collection or something at the library on CD, and Statesboro Blues was on it on a, on a disc that I think was called Postmodern Blues. Um, the other memory I have though is that I was listening to Eat a Peach, and was getting really into it, and I told my friend Leroy, uh, whose farm I was visiting, that uh, I was getting into the Almond Brothers, and he pulled out Live at Fillmore East because he I hadn't heard Statesboro Blues. <laughs> this is that I didn't remember the name of the song with Statesboro blues or something like that because I, I think that I really do believe that that was my first the first way it grabbed me and then I, I also picked up eat a peach at the library uh, and and listened to that the whole summer I turned probably it was the summer I turned 17 is when I uh, wore that well I would have worn it out if it hadn't been a digital recording um, and then so when when Leroy pulled out live at Fillmore East that was the first time I heard in memory of Elizabeth Reed um, and uh, and and The rest is kind of history as I just kept kind of pawing through it. I had been into acts like Johnny Winter um, and a little bit into Hendrix and Cream and things like that. So the blues rock thing was was already happening in my mind. Uh, But this was a sort of a a step further in.
1: It's funny that you said that you found your way to the almonds through the blues because I found my way through a very different trajectory which i think these are the two ways that people get into the allman brothers i guess maybe the third way is you listen to them on classic rock radio and then you think ah, oh, well i should know about the allman brothers and in fact that actually is the first way i ever got into them which is that you know i everyone knew Ramblin' man i think i probably knew whip and post out of the corner of my ear midnight rider those are the songs that you hear played on classic rock radio um and you know so i did what You know, any kind of classic rock curious kid in the 90s does. I bought A Decade of Hits, that CD, uh, 1969 to 1979, which is, you know, as far as it goes, it's not a bad compilation. It does have a lot of great songs on it, but I'll tell you, it never really grabbed me. I mean, there were some songs in it that I really loved. I, I actually, Ramblin' Man wasn't really one of them. It's never been a favorite of mine, but Jessica just whomped me over the head i still love that song and i did like statesboro blues i liked dreams uh but i didn't feel like the compilation held together it didn't make me want to go explore further into the allman brothers what made me want to go deeper into them and what eventually turned me into an obsessive compulsive fan was uh my gateway drug into them and that of course is the grateful good old grateful dead um talked a lot about the on this show I've mentioned the dead several times and on twitter people at, ask us constantly well when are you going to do a dead episode and i and i keep having to say sadly i just don't know how we can ever cover the grateful dead on political beats because so much of the greatness of their music is found exclusively in their live concerts and their albums man for the most part their studio recordings They just don't really hold up. It's pale shadow of the greatness that they were capable of bringing to bear. And as I got into the Dead's live recordings, the kinds of people who were into the Dead also turned out to be very much into the Almond Brothers and particularly the er early Almond Brothers. They'd say to me, go oh, go check out, you know, at Fillmore East, go to go check out uh, this this recording that the dead soundman made of them in February 1970, which is like a famous run for the Grateful Dead themselves. So I started getting into that, getting into the live music before I even bought any of the studio albums. And I was transfixed. Time had passed since I'd had that first exposure to, you know, the greatest hits collection and i was much more into both blues in general uh but also muscular and endlessly listenable and live performances the dead and the almonds often get compared i think it's a superficial comparison it of course initially began because they had a similar instrumental lineup they had double drums double guitars bass and organ um and of course those lineups both of them would shift as time went on but the Dead were a much more improvisational band, whereas the Allmans were very much a song-based band. And I think even Greg Allman will, will say this, would say this constantly. He would say like, you know, we're not a jam band. We're just a band that jams. I found their live material so compelling that I said to myself, well, okay, now I have to go figure out what else the rest of this band is about. And then what I found, much to my surprise, is that unlike the Dead. The Allman Brothers' studio albums, particularly during their early classic era, were amazing as well. They were the opposite of the dead who could never get it together in the studio. And maybe this is because of Dwayne Allman's like, uh, you know, long history as a session musician. I think, in fact, that probably does have a role. Uh, but the Allmans captured the power of their sound in the studio on albums as well as live. There were two different beasts but they were a unified beast in a way that the dead never were. Like their live experience is just so different from what you hear on the albums to the point where I never want to hear their studio albums again. But the first two Almond Brothers Band uh, albums, and then after at, at Fillmore East and Eat a Peach and Brothers and Sisters, this stuff captures them in full flight and is every bit as great a representation of what it was they were great at as any of the stuff that they did live. Although I think both are equally essential. kind of become sort of an Allman Brothers band obsessive and a Dwayne Allman obsessive. Not so much an all-man and woman obsessive. I'm <laughs> not really big into the share. I'm sorry, I don't know program. what you're
2: talking about. I don't, yes,
1: yes, I don't. we're going to inflict it on you later. Just trust me, Andrew. It's going to be painful, but you'll be grateful. Um, but I really love everything that they did. And what really has to be emphasized about them is, you know, in their early years at least, the double guitar and double drum attack. The Dead, the Almonds actually, I think it was Butch Trucks, their, one of their drummers, that is maybe a little bit, you know, kind of like throwing shit. He said, like, The Dead never really knew what to do with two drums. <laughs> um, which, you know, there's an argument there. They, the Dead always rehearsed all of their double drum arrangements. It was it was very, very much planned out. Whereas, you know, Butch and Jimo would just, you know, just pound it out and just basically play by by feel and it would still sound right. And then, of course... Pair that with the double guitar attack where you had Dwayne Allman on the one side, usually on the left channel in your ears, and then there's Dickie Betts on the right channel. And they didn't just like both, you know, trade lead guitar solos. They interlocked with one another. They interwove with one another. They could go from these very tightly written passages into just free-form expression. Um, it was a magnificent experience, uh, both live. And it's still captured really well on their studio records. What I'm most impressed by at the end of the day with the almonds, even though like there's just so much drama, we'll have to cover some of the drama, of course, um, is the sheer musicality of them and the way they kind of invented a genre out of whole cloth, southern rock. I don't like the term Southern Rock because I think it's it's reductionist. Like, yeah, okay, there's the Almond Brothers, there's Leonard Skinner, there's a couple other bands that come out of there. Yeah, it's Um, it's
2: at least under it doesn't describe enough because the Almonds and Leonard Skinner are not the same kind of band.
1: No, they're very different bands. Leonard Skinner was a much more tightly wound band. We've done a Leonard Skinner episode, a great one with Mark Davis. Uh, They were a much more tightly wrapped uh, group than the Almonds ever were. Uh, but this stuff is free and flows so well, and it has such blues feeling to it. It's kind of a revolution in electric blues, because they, they take it, and it doesn't sound phony. It's, it's a bunch of white guys, well, w- except for JMO, but uh, you know, a bunch of white guys taking the blues and making it sound completely lived in and real, uh, but changing its, its actual sound uh, into something that's much more electrified and aggressive and passionate, uh, This is sort of the beginning of something, and boy, if I want to sound pessimistic, it'll always feel a little bit like the end of it, too, because I just don't think anything has come close to doing what the Almonds did in that specific niche that they occupied. This is a great band. It wasn't a great band for their entire career. Man, there's a long sort of tail end of their career that just doesn't do very much for me at all. But when they were great, there was nobody greater than them.
0: But I think that my uh, Alman introduction may have come through uh, knowing uh, Dwayne Allman's involvement with uh, Layla and other assorted love, uh, assorted love songs, the, the Derek of the Domino's record. And and, and and hearing him play with Clapton on a lot of those tracks, I think was the way that I entered uh, at least some of that early Alman Brothers stuff. And growing up, a lot of their, you know, this is a band that... Uh, that ended up writing and performing a lot of instrumentals, which I love. I love a great instrumental. It goes back to my love of, uh, surf music perhaps. But, uh, and so a lot of their songs, these instrumentals were used in various locations, uh, and popped up. I mean, I'm thinking about the, the road scene from field of dreams when he's out trying to probably drive into Boston or something. And Jessica plays, uh, as, as he's driving across the country and the Allman brothers songs would pop up in various places. Um, you know, um, here and there both commercially and you know in film and in other places and that 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 is one way that i was introduced to uh to the band certainly and um classic rock radio absolutely and and you know there, there was one track on one of those late day records i don't know if it was a chicago thing i know it got it got a lot of play on mainstream rock stations at that time but specifically maybe in chicago you know no one left to run with was Everywhere. And that's a song I knew very, very well uh, what it would have released from, I guess, Mach 3 or so of the Ullman Brothers yeah, uh, sort yeah. of uh, eras. And, um, you know, digging back, you really see, I think, how the band changed, certainly due to uh, sad circumstances, deaths. It also just lineup changes over the years. And it also how various members really had influence on the sound based on what they loved. You know, Dwayne Allman brought different things to the band than Dickie Betts did, who brought different things to the band than Butch Trucks did. And all of these individual members really were able to leave a fingerprint on the band's sound. And what's neat, as I neatly segue over to Jeff, is how early, (laughs) when the band was coming together, you could see how these disparate influences were, were brought together.
1: I mean the thing about the Allman brothers and it, the best way to discover is so at least the sort of the briefest summary is to go check out the dreams box set, which is, I think one of the, the very few truly great like four CD box sets from the classic era. I think it was put together by the same people who put together Eric Clapton's crossroads. Yes. And the yeah. miracle of crossroads is that it actually makes Eric Clapton's career somewhat presentable. Um, cause <laughs> Scott and I are notorious non Clapton fans. Um, uh, this is uh, a, a much more, I think, a much better group than anything Clapton was involved in outside of Derek and the Dominoes or maybe Blind Faith. Uh, and the funny thing about it is that you realize there is a serious prehistory, not just to Dwayne and to Greg Allman, but to all the guys in the band. Of course, Dwayne and Greg were born, I think, in D- like Daytona Beach, Florida or something uh, like ra-
2: that. Raised there. They weren't, I think they were both born in Nashville. They lived in uh, Norfolk for a little while or something. And so, then we're more or less raised in Daytona.
1: There you go. So, like, they, they of course, form their own little, like, <clears> high school bands. You know, they take up the guitar. I think Greg finally moves over to Oregon once it becomes the obvious that Dwayne is going to be far better on guitar than he could ever hope to be. And he's like, well, there's no point in me playing this anymore. Uh, But Greg can sing. Dwayne doesn't really sing. He has an okay voice every time he he takes an occasional lead vocal, but it's nothing special compared to Greg. And they form like an early band called the Escorts. And then the Escorts become, which is a silly name, the Almond Joys. Yes. They took their name, the Almonds, and then they named it after the candy bar. You'd think there certainly
0: would have been a lawsuit down the road if they kept that name. You got to you got to shoot your shot. That that's all, <laughs> that's all I can say.
1: The Almond Joys. and of course th- this early stuff which is like mid 60s, 65, 66 material it shows their earliest influences which you know is the blues for one like they cover Spoonful but then again they also do like this really great cover of Shapes of Things by the Yardbirds. So, to your allman was obsessed with like the early you know clapton jeff beck era yardbirds i don't think he really cared about the jimmy page yardbirds and i know he wasn't a fan of led zeppelin um but man you know hearing them do like mr you're a better man than i or you know shapes of things is funny and of course what do they do they well they're in florida you know there's nothing happening in florida in terms of the music scene except steve Alamo. Uh, the guy who starred in the Mystery Science Theater 3000 film, <laughs> Wild Rebels, um, about like biker gangs in, in northern Florida. So they go to Los Angeles. And, of course, when you go to Los Angeles, you become part of that Los Angeles scene. You get the pressures from the record executives. You want to sign a deal and you want to release an album. Well, you got to get psychedelic. So that's what they start doing. They change their name from the Almond Joys to Hourglass. And they start recording songs that sound a lot less bluesy and a lot more poppy. But i got to tell you, like, pop psychedelic early almonds is great. Have you ever heard their their cover of an early Jackson Browne song called Cast Off All My Fears? It's incredible pop psychedelic joy from, like, 1967. You know, Greg is singing, and I'll cast off all my fears. And it sounds like a really credible pop psych rock band from that era. Of course, it didn't really get any play in the charts. It never went anywhere. the other hand greg ended up making really good friends with jackson brown and you know they actually lived together for a while back in the days before either of them had made it so you know they're forced to do stuff they don't believe in there's this goofy psychedelic cover of norwegian wood that they're for- they're forced to do a lot of this stuff <laughs> shows up on the the twain almond box set called sky dog which which chronicles all not just the stuff with the almonds but all the Session work that he did prior to them and even during their run, which is just fantastic. It's seven CDs long, so it's thorough, but it's a lot of fun. But you know, hearing their psychedelic instrumental version of Norwegian Wood, where where Dwayne is not playing electric guitar, he's playing, I think, electric sitar instead. Uh, it's it's kind of nuts. actually try to record like bluesy demos for their label they do like a medley of bb king songs
2: yeah that's really good
1: it's really good and ain't no good to cry just you can hear everything that the almonds are going to be coming right out of that label rejects it and so they say you know what screw it i'm out of here dwayne says what am i going to do i guess i'm just going to go become a session musician so he goes uh first to jacksonville florida which is where he meets uh, a couple of other guys, uh, particularly a fellow named Butch Trucks, who is a drummer in this band called the 31st of February. I love these late <laughs> 60s psychedelic names, right? Like, you know, this is like, you know, you know, the 13th floor elevators and stuff like that. The 31st of February. Th- this
2: version of ZZ Top was called the Moving Sidewalks.
1: Uh, the moving sidewalks is another classic example of these, these bands that would later become southern rockers they're still trying to play the the psych rock game in the late 60s and so he and greg uh you know record a couple of demos with them including a song called melissa that apparently was dwayne's favorite song of his uh that wouldn't get recorded until very much later in their career uh but they do a really great version of morning dew which is a song of course that deadheads will know for obvious reasons but you know They do kind of a very tripped out version of it, but then Greg has to go back to Los Angeles. I think they have like sort of like debts to their record label, and so he's like, "Oh, I'm gonna go try to make it out there." You know, Dwayne decides to stay back at home because he's had enough of Los Angeles. He hated that scene; he felt it was just grinding, grinding him dead. Uh, And then he goes to Muscle Shoals, and of course, if you're a fan of great studio musicianship, the rest is history. This is where Dwayne Allman starts to build this reputation as one of the greatest session players in the south uh all the great names of like southern soul and r&b and rock you can think of he played on them. he played on clarence carter he played with king curtis he played with arthur conley and uh he played with aretha franklin but most of all he played with wilson pickett and this is a song that we have already discussed on this show when we did our best covers episode it was one of the first ones i mentioned one of the best beatles covers of all time and I'm talking about Hey Jude. If you have not heard Wilson Pickett's version of Hey Jude, well it's it's worth it just on its own on the basis of Wilson Pickett's performance, but uh by God, when 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 Dwayne comes in at the end with that guitar solo, it's just sparks flying all <laughs> over the room. <laughs>
2: I just I want to jump in right right where you just left off, Jeff. The uh, the Hey Jude track is is interesting, I, and I want to come back to it in a in a couple albums because I actually think the first half, when Dwayne is just uh, kind of playing little fills, uh, is it, it's such a good groove, and his guitar playing in that section is so perfect uh, that it sets a standard that I think he failed to meet again. later on when the Almonds did kind of a soul song on uh, on their second record, but. All those tracks that you, you were you were mentioning, like the, when he played with Arthur Conley, uh, the, the tracks he did with Aretha, including her version of The Weight, he plays slide on that. That's probably the first really prominent Dwayne Allman slide part. Um, that's really, really good. He played on a track uh, that she did where King Curtis's saxophone is more heavily featured. Uh, I think it's called Just Ain't Fair or something like that. And it's uh, spectacular. Again, just soul rhythm playing. And so that that section of, of Dwayne's previous career is my favorite kind of uh, pre almonds thing. There is a track, I think they did this when they were called The Hourglass. There's a track called Down in Texas. I don't think that they wrote it. I don't remember who did. Uh, the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band wound up playing it later, but I'm pretty sure that was a callback to The almonds. you know, uh, when once they had discovered it. Uh, but that track in particular is one that I would seek out because it, it kind of, it delivers... A little bit of a preview into how, you know, Dwayne's playing would be uh, later on. He takes a really good guitar solo uh, on it. But but it is also, it's a, it's a reminder that what these guys were trying to do, even in the early days of the Almond Brothers, what Greg and Dwayne had on their mind was essentially just playing R&B. They wanted to be a soul act. That's what they were there to do. And even the straight blues that they wound up doing, I don't really think that they, I don't think there was that much of a distinction between playing, you know, early 60s, Chicago blues covers or, or even, uh, earlier Southern blues covers. I don't think there was that much of a distinction between that, uh, and, and kind of the more late sixties contemporary R and B they were into as there would be for us now. I think that they, they looked at those things as more of an integrity than we would today.
1: I think it's even more important that Down in Texas is a cover than it would be if it was an original song, because to me, it's a really great early example of what the Allman Brothers would be just perfect at in their their early phase with Dwayne, which is taking old blues songs and making them sound like they're their own, because Down in Texas just sounds like them. It doesn't sound like a cover. It just sounds completely unauthentically an Almond Brothers song. Yeah,
2: it could have been on an Almond Brothers. Right? It was a couple years before they cut a record as the Almond Brothers, but I agree with you. It could have been on an Almond Brothers record and it wouldn't be out of place.
3: I left you crying at the DC station? Had a little spin and change. Lord knows I had determination If you want to go life You have to make it big So I left you waiting So I could go out and dig In this big old world
1: Uh, any thoughts on this early stuff?
0: Uh, I would only uh, emphasize uh, what Jeff said about the hourglass stuff. I, I think that uh, that batch of music is really quality. It's hard to believe that someone would hear that and not think that it was worthy of release. Uh, that Jackson Brown track that uh, Jeff mentioned, which, which came, I think, when he was just a house writer. I mean, it was Jackson Brown was just writing stuff for other people to use. Uh, but that's really good down in Texas. Ain't no good to cry. Uh, all the hourglass stuff I've heard is is really good, uh, but as as Andrew mentioned, that's not quite what they wanted to do, right? This is kind of light poppy soul with a with a psychedelic edge, uh, but it wasn't that sort of gritty R and B southern soul sound that the band would become. But I guess it goes to show they they could do a lot of different things. They could play this hourglass stuff and be convincing. And be good while still having in their heart the desire to do some other stuff uh, which we would see coming very soon but the sourglass stuff specifically I would say is well worth a listen
2: it's a great point like there's no there's no sonic difference between their version of no good to cry and like the turtles or something like why why that wasn't a hit radio hit I can't explain it sounds just like it the the better stuff that was on the radio in 1967 anyway
1: Couldn't agree more, but it wasn't what Allman's vision was. Now, Allman's vision of a band was, first of all, get away from Los Angeles. Get away from all of that. So he was kind of happy in Muscle Shoals, and he actually met a guy there at, at Muscle Shoals. I think he was playing with, uh, you know, playing on a demo for some other artist. This guy named, uh, Lord, this is a memorable name, his name is Jay Jahani Johansson, <laughs> which, you know, that's his real, I, I looked it up, that's his real name, that's his birth name. <laughs> and so his parents obviously had a sense of humor you know he's jjj and and he's also his middle name is Johanny with the last name Johansson. of course his nickname is JMO. uh black guy uh fantastic drummer um you know very much into much more sort of loose flowing beats he was the jazz aficionado of what would become the band later on and he said okay you know well, we'll start a band with you and of course get my brother greg in they, you know, Greg had been living out in Los Angeles. They hadn't been talking for a while. He says, Greg, you got to drop what you're doing and come here. We're going to start a band. I need you to sing. I need you to play organ on it. Uh, and then he started thinking to himself, well, you know, he invited uh, a guy he'd met. Uh, you know, he'd met these these two guys playing in this other band. Uh, what was the name of it? I can't remember. The Second it Coming. Second Coming. Right. Yeah. yeah. And they were much more kind of straight up pop psych. They were playing like stuff like Jefferson Airplane covers and things like that. Uh, The two guys in that band were a fella named Barry Oakley who played bass, had a really kind of distinctive and very lyrical sound, and another guy named Dickie Betts who played guitar. And he said, well, you know what? Let's just have them come and jam with us. And all of a sudden the image in his mind came together. Why don't we just have two drums, two guitars, bass, and an organ? We can just be a big powerhouse blues rock ensemble. And so what he did is he called Butch Trucks back up. And he said, okay, Butch, come on. You're going to join us too, right? All of a sudden – the Almond Brothers have come into existence.
2: And I think Dwayne's and, justification for the two drummers was something like James Brown has two drummers, why can't I?
1: <laughs> and you know what? I think he made it work just as well. They spent so much time rehearsing and woodshedding. Kind of reminds me of like, hey, what was the name of, um, you know, when Leonard Skinner would be practicing, and uh, you know, Ronnie Van Zant would oh, be putting them through their paces. Right. What was the name of that shack? Oh, like, I can't oh, I'm gonna feel now. bad for not being able to pluck it out of my <laughs> head. But, but they spent hours upon hours playing and working themselves up and then what they do is that they you know they relocated from Jacksonville which is of course where Leonard Skinner started too incidentally and they moved up to like Macon Georgia and uh, then they would practice there and play there and then they they drive you know you know 40 miles north to to Atlanta and just like play free concerts in the park sort of as a way to get their name out Get people's attention. like all of a sudden, boom, they're just setting up on you know, the, the bandstand in the middle of the park and jamming for two hours. and you know by the end of the two hours, like they'd have drawn a crowd of like 500 people who were just stunned at what this kind of music was. and they were playing basically the stuff that was going to show up on their first album. Uh, this stuff was something that had really not yet been heard in rock. It's not electric blues the way you think of when you think of like Muddy Waters or even like a blues rock like Bo Diddley. It's not anything like, say, Fleetwood Mac or Eric Clapton. When I say Fleetwood Mac, I'm talking about like Peter Green era Fleetwood Mac. It's not anything like that either. It is its own very intense and sweaty and southern fried yet in tightly, tightly, you know, orchestrated and choreographed music that just suddenly sort of breaks free in in the solos into anything that the players are feeling like playing or doing at that particular moment in time. And they get themselves a recording contract with Atlantic Records. I think they'd already known that Jerry Wexler had already known, who's the head of Atlantic, had already known Dwayne from his work, you know, at uh, Muscle Shoals. And so they said, uh, hey, we're starting a spin-off label called Capricorn Records, you know, and I think we're gonna be sort of helping distribute their stuff. So they start that and then they record their first album. And the name of that album, which doesn't sell, nobody really finds out about it until years, years later, it's called the Almond Brothers Band. I am almost feeling intense regret that when we talked about our greatest debut albums <laughs> in, in the episode that we did uh, for Patreon uh, we did not mention this album because the more I go back and listen to it the more I tell myself where is the flaw here I don't really think I can find a flaw the only flaw I could potentially name is that you know some of these songs are going to get a lot longer and a lot more interesting live like Whipping Post is like 6 minutes here and it'll be 20 minutes later when they start playing it though know, in great length but I really like almost every single thing on this record
2: yeah the it is a great debut record, and honestly at least at least kind of retrospectively obviously i you know i I didn't become a fan of this I wasn't born till fifteen years after dwayne was dead, so it's not like I heard this contemporaneously uh but but for a track one side one, you can do a lot of their debut album right you can do a lot worse than the way they just rip into a Spencer Davis cover, which I guess is a miniature callback to your last episode here. I know. I
1: know. Um, very, very much in track here. Yeah.
2: And uh, and I, I think that there was a review which which sort of remarked, like, this is really weird. The very first thing on <laughs> this record is a Spencer Davis cover, and it's instrumentalized. Because there were lyrics, I think, to Don't Want You No More. Yeah, there are. Right? Yeah. And, uh, and then it flows directly into It's Not My Cross to Bear, which is... A blues original. It's not a conventional 12-bar blues. It's not even like one of the other kind of most traditional blues formats of eight or nine bars. Uh, it's, it is a, it's a unique song, but it's obviously a purely blues song. And Greg is, what, 20 <laughs> or 21 maybe?
0: Uh, That's a note I made <laughs> upon uh, frequent listening. It is so hard to try to remember how old these guys are based on what they're playing, how They sound, I mean, you know, yeah, there's vocals and whipping posts. It's a 20, what, 23 year old kid, something like that. I think it's... he was, well, I mean, Dwayne was 24 I was when he died, than that. yeah, and they're like 18 months apart. Yeah. So I think Greg's like 20
2: on this record, probably.
1: And, and, you, and you can never hear that song without thinking of some really grizzled old guy with wrinkles and a big <laughs> white beard,
2: right? It worked and, out that these were the hits because it made sense for him to keep singing them until he died when they're like 68 <laughs> or whatever. But, uh, but at the time, like, if you just think about the fact that a 20 year old kid wrote It's Not My Cross to Bear, and and they arranged it. And I do think, by the way, this is going to come up again. Greg, I, I if Greg had a real musical genius other than songwriting, and I, I do think that he's a greater songwriter maybe than, than he gets credit for. You don't usually hear him in lists of great singer-songwriters or whatever, but he really did some uh, amazing work there. But he, he was very good with arrangements, and... So I I imagine you can give him some credit for the flow from don't want you no more into it's not my cross the bear which again I just think is one of the most spectacular pieces I guess one last weird thing about the beginning of this record is the first solo on an Almond Brothers record is Greg on the organ. Organ, yes. And you know it's the greatest guitar band in American history, maybe. Uh, and yet the first thing that happens is uh, is an organ solo, and it's pretty good. It's it's shorter. Greg was nowhere near the virtuoso on organ that uh, Dwayne was on guitar or even Dickie was on guitar. Uh, but uh, when he was when he was doing a especially a studio solo, he knew what he was supposed to do, and it's it's a great. You know, one-two punch to open this career.
1: Yeah. I think I think Allman's organ sound is hugely underrated. I think it's one of my favorite just sounds throughout their career that you're gonna get. It's got that very crusty, thick vibe. It kind of, again, you know, flashing back to our most recent episode. It reminds me of the great organ sound on like Spencer Davis Group's "Give Me Some Lovin." You know, that big, thick, you know, wash of sound. Uh, It's like, you know, couldn't be further away from some chintzier and less, you know, distinguished sound that the dead would have on their stuff. I love Almond as an organ player. You know, yeah, as you Mm. said, nobody ever talks about it. But by God, it's like the bed upon which everything else sits. And it's really an essential part of their sound mix. It's
2: what makes those twin guitar leads possible because there's no there's no vacancy in the in the audio when the right. organ is just consistently you know filling the the space behind there it really is uh it, it's an essential piece of this band
0: the yeah. first solo heard is is allman's uh, organ the first word or sound <laughs> vocal sound on the record is that guttural scream shout that begins on uh, it's not my cross to bear this first time you hear, you know words or sounds uh vocal sounds on the record and, uh, boy, it just sets you up. Yeah. <coughs> uh, again, th- they sound so old. They sound so weary and weathered, and they're not. They're just kids. Uh, they've been working hard. The Hell House, by the way, Jeff, is the uh, uh, Thank you. Shed oh, yeah shed where they worked out. Uh, but these guys, yes, they had these songs down cold. Recorded this first album in the span of uh, six days. It didn't take long to get down what they, what they knew, uh, what they knew instinctively by this point. And so you hear on this first album, uh, very bold, very powerful, hard-edged music. Certainly, uh, th- th- at core, uh, the blues, right? Which is which is what Dwayne Ullman is so adept at playing. Uh, that bottleneck slide on "Trouble No More," uh, but but again, the beauty is the way it's sort of put right next to, on top of the the acoustic part uh, that Dickie Betts is, is playing on a song like that. I really like Black-Hearted Woman, which is one of the uh, one of the Greg Ullman originals uh, on this record. There are a number of covers, but uh, Ullman does a lot of good writing here, great writing here. And to note, I guess early on, there's no Dicky Betts here. Dicky Betts didn't write a single thing on this debut album. Uh, he would quickly become a very important writer in the Ullman Brothers world, but he didn't write anything. On this first album, it's almost entirely if it's original, it's almost entirely Greg Allman doing the writing here, as he did on Black Hearted Woman. Wonderfully catchy riffs. It's kind and, of a
2: weird little song, yeah. but it, but in it, but it also really it foreshadows the the kind of the funkiness that he mm-hmm. is in the, on the second record is going to bring out a lot more.
0: And if you're wondering what you do with two drummers, Black Hearted Woman is a good example of. Oh, okay. Here's how it works. Here's how you can play those percussion elements off each other and really make it a distinctive part of the band's sound. mentioned whipping post a little bit already. That that is just an amazing song, uh, and it would get better in the live versions certainly, at Phil east. But here it's just five minutes and 17 seconds of absolute like concentrated uh, passion fire. and agony and fire. Yeah, and I, I, that opening is so distinctive and wonderful that that uh, that bass line. By well, I gotta Oakley. talk about that opening in oh. a second.
1: I think there's something really funny about it. I, here's I what,
0: think... I'll say quickly about the opening. I'll hand it off to you, Jeff. Uh, when I when I just hear that. I think, you know, if Quentin Tarantino was commissioning a song for a soundtrack for a film, that's what he wanted to sound like. That sort of uh, uh, kind of exotic, suspenseful, uh, edgy beginning, and then then the frenzy that Whipping Post eventually turns into.
1: Okay, Whipping Post was almost a waltz, which I think is hilarious, because the opening of that is an 11-4, okay? It's... He goes, repeats like that. So he plays it to his brother. Uh, Greg plays the song to Dwayne, and Dwayne says, "Oh, I didn't know you knew how to write an eleven-four. That's really cool." And Greg is like, "What's eleven-four? Like he didn't even have any idea what the time signature is, or that he'd done anything strange. He's just trying to create something propulsive." Right. So he has the one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two. Uh, and then Dwayne, like, literally just, you know, put his arm over his little brother's shoulders. Like, <laughs> All right. Sit down, dumbass. I'm going to write this out so you can understand what it is you accidentally did, which is hilarious. Um, but it's so important because if it had been written in straight three, it would be a little waltz, really. One two three, one two three, one two three, one two three. The song actually could still theoretically work, but it wouldn't have that volcanic feeling mm-hmm. that it has by being off balance. At clipping that last beat, whipping post becomes something that's perpetually unstable and it's always sort of like rocking back and forth like you know is there like nitroglycerin underneath this song and that comes out even more clearly when you hear it played live at like at the Fillmore East but it's still there on this original recording of it.
3: don't know why I let that mean woman make me a fool. She took all my money, wrecked my new car. Now she's with one of my good time buddies, they're drinking in some crosstown.
1: about whipping posts. First of all, those lyrics are great. You know, just great old, you know, old blues cliches repurposed and turned into just this great, you know, cry of anguish. You know, I see you running around with one of my Good, Town bu- Good Time buddies in some downtown bar or crosstown bar and he says, sometimes I feel like I've been tied. And he suddenly sounds like he's again, 55 years old, but he's not. <laughs> been tied to the whipping post. Lord, I feel like I'm dying and then Dwayne and Dickie these twinned lines, and then Greg's organ comes in underneath, and the, the, the transition back to the verse—it's a magnificent arrangement, on top of being an incredibly well-written, surprisingly complicated song. And I think one of the surprising things about that, this Almond Brothers debut album, is that you—you you think of them as like these these great cover artists taking old blues songs and turning them into something new that seems unique, but it's still a cover of an old song. There's only two covers on this record. The first one's the Spencer Davis one that we talked about, Don't Want You No More. And the other one is another one that would never leave their set lists, and it goes back to one of their favorite musicians of all time, and that's Trouble No More by Muddy Waters. That is just a deathless, deathless performance. You know, Don't Bother Me Anymore. And the way Dickie and Dwayne intertwine their guitars, it sounds like there's a harmonica on the track but there's not. What that is, is Dwayne Allman playing the nastiest, dirtiest sounding slide guitar, bottleneck slide. And it's just an amazing way of simulating a harmonica sound without actually using one at all. Just playing slide guitar, you get that same sort of grit and dirt into the song. And you know that's why that song like, would never, ever leave their set list as long as they were a working band.
2: Greg said that's the first song when they told him to sit down and play, you know, when, when Greg had pulled him in, or uh, when Dwayne had pulled him in for the first time, Greg said that's the first song they played. And uh, it, as you said, it never left, and there's another great version on uh, Eat a Peach that we're going to talk about. But before we leave this record, I think my least favorite song is probably Every Hungry Woman. Uh, lyrically, it's pretty, well, it just says the same thing over and over again. Uh, but the in the in in the guitar solo section, the kind of out outro of the of the solo section is the first time when uh, Dwayne and Dickey sound like what we think of when we think of the Almond Brothers intertwined uh, lead guitars. They're they're doing these these really cool harmonies, uh, which it sounds like it could be improvised, but obviously it's not because they're playing it you know right along with one another, uh, and it's it's really great. And then dreams we didn't mention this dreams is an old song that uh, that Greg had. He had done a version of what probably in the in the hourglass days, uh, Jeff. Um, I
1: think there's a demo from like '68 or something like that. I'm not yeah. sure what, what era it dates, like band era it dates from. But yeah, it's a yeah. very old one.
2: So he had it with him when when the Almond Brothers started, but but that ver the the, the previous version is a um, nothing but a, a you know twinkle in the eye of what of what the song became. It's it's a great recording. This this is the way in which the Almonds stayed kind of in the psychedelic you know movement. Is with with something like this it's eerie it's basically a three chord song or really even a two chord song it is also in a waltz uh, uh, or at least it, it's I guess I haven't thought about what the what the actual time signature is but it it has a very jazzy kind of no uh, oh, it's a waltz drum. I can just it it counting like,
1: it out in my head it's in three. yeah that's yeah. right it
2: is right and uh, and Dwayne I think Dwayne plays all the solo on it I don't think Dickie takes a solo at all and, and he starts with a with a straight lead solo and then after a minute or two minutes of it, uh, puts the slide on and then uh, plays uh, a longer solo with the slide, uh, which is interesting musically because it it suggests I'm pretty sure it's true that he was playing that 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 slide guitar in standard tuning, which is something of a different beast from what he would eventually do of uh, of having two guitars, one in in open E tuning and and one in standard tuning. The open E used for slide, but that's that's really a tour de force. It's uh, it's the kind of thing that. know there's other great guitar players but there was never another guitar player who could have made dreams into what it was I mean people have since been able to do good good work on it like Derek Trucks does would would do like you know at the the end of the Allman Brothers run Uh, but Dwayne was the only guy who could have come up with that vibe
1: Telling that on the Dwayne Allman box set, Skydog, where you know, he calls the best of his basically his work throughout his entire recorder career, every single song from the Allman Brothers Band album is included on the <laughs> box. They, they only include like three or four songs from Idle Wild South. Every single song from this record is on there. Wow. That's how highly everybody thinks of it. Speaking of which, by the way, uh, for a word of caution to the listeners, there are two mixes of this album. And it's very controversial because Dwayne Allman famously claimed that he hated the original mix of this. It it was supposed to be produced by Tom Dowd, but Dowd wasn't available for whatever reason. So they went to New York to record it, and I think Adrian Barber, who's this very British, kind of snooty British guy, recorded it instead. Um, And he didn't like that remix. And so when they reissued the the first two albums later on in the band's career, Dowd remixed it. And... um, That's what's available on on the set beginnings, which you might be tempted to get because it's like, well, the value for the money. It's both albums on one CD. Why not get that? I hate that remix so much. I don't care what Dwayne said. I love the original mix of this album because it sounds like what the band sounded like live to me, whereas the remix is just a swampy mess in my opinion. And I, I don't know if you have any strong opinions about that Scott I doubt you're the kind of person yeah. who's like comparing Allman Brothers mixes the way I am <laughs> no. but I care.
2: I think that the problem with the production I, the, I don't I I actually I can just tell you that that either I don't didn't pay enough attention or or maybe I I don't have a preference because I never really noticed until you started talking about it as we were prepping for this that that the mixes are so different. Um and I I mean I've owned on like every format uh, both the beginnings and Almond brothers band versions. And, and it's never bothered me that much. What does bother me. And what I always figured Dwayne meant when he said he hated the production is the entire, uh, every guitar part is soaked in reverb and it yeah. works. It works great on like, say the first two tracks. There's nothing wrong with it. It kind of works on whipping posts. Although I wish that uh, maybe for the solo section, you know, starting say halfway through the get the guitars, maybe were a little more present than they are um so it's not that it does and obviously it works great on dreams that makes sense but the every every guitar part is uh is is has a lot of reverb going on and and i just think it it winds up sounding a little monotonous and so if i were going to critique the production that's that's where i would go and there was nothing tom dowd could do about that it wasn't a question of mix it was what they recorded
1: what they recorded in the studio now that so what happens after this releases well it's a big flop you know, it doesn't sell. Nobody really cares about these Pudnuckers from Macon, Georgia. You know, Southern rock is not a thing yet. None of this has any commercial impact whatsoever. What does have a commercial impact is the Almond Brothers' growing reputation as a touring band. They start going all up and down the country to wherever, where anywhere that will have them. They start impressing people who come in looking at these guys. There's a great story about the Fillmore East sound crew. Saw them when they showed up in December of 69 for their first ever gig at, the, at, the, uh, at the, the, the hall there and they said like who are these, these literally these backwards ass hicks who fell off a turnip truck and they see them like unloading their own equipment they have like one roadie they're all like long haired and shaggy with goofy mustaches and lanky uh, and then they get up on stage and they play and they just blow everyone's face off votes we want them back as soon as possible (laughs) so they come back in february to open for the grateful dead and those shows get recorded and it's available now you can go find it um been commercially released you can find it on youtube uh it's a magnificent sound of the band during those first post you know allman brothers band era days um just sort of doing what they do best there's a 30-minute like version of Mountain Jam, a song we'll discuss when we get to eat a peach, I guess. I can listen to it seven times in a row. I just love that kind of stuff. They can play tight, constructed songs. They can jam freely forever. Their growing reputation as a live act is what sets the stage for their next album, which is Idle Wild South. Uh, a lot of fans consider this to be the best Almond Brothers album ever. I'm not sure I'd say that, studio album, that is. I'm not sure I'd say that. I just think there's just so much competition from this early phase. But if you're going to say, well, what Allman Brothers songs have you heard of? I guarantee you two of them come from this record, Uh, Midnight Rider and In Memory of Elizabeth Reed. And uh, Scott, do you want to embarrass yourself by telling us the first time you ever encountered the song Midnight Rider?
0: (laughs) I don't think it's embarrassing. (laughs) watching, uh, I'm sure it was an NFL game of some sort, or 1991, 1992. And uh, Miller Genuine Draft had a wonderful ad campaign in which they featured all sorts of great classic rock songs, like uh, uh, Bang a Gong and uh, Mississippi Queen, I remember that one very well, and um, a few others, including uh, Midnight Rider. And uh, in this one, if I remember correctly, a, a, a you know, like a phantom cowboy appears as the M. Miller Genuine drafter being passed out around the bar. <laughs> um, very effective, very memorable, and very well might have been the first time I had heard Midnight Rider. I've got to-
2: a couple things just getting into this record first of all we we we've been kind of mentioning the years but the band was formed in march of 69 i think they recorded the almond brothers band debut album that summer i don't remember exactly when and i think it's out in like august or september maybe and so we're now talking about early 1970 when this record is recorded and released and uh it just it just shows how quickly this I mean, this, this, the, the initial era of this band is a two and a half year deal. So we're already like halfway through, uh, what the Almond brothers band, mm-hmm. you know, would become. And, uh, and just like the last one, this is a seven song record. We could talk of it. we probably will talk about all seven of them like we did on the debut album. Um, and I, I'll just begin with, with saying you guys talked on your Credence Clearwater revival episode about how weird it is that a guy, you know, John Fogerty sat down and wrote the song proud Mary. Like, how do you. How do you have the the guts and wherewithal to write a song that simple and that classic? And how is it that it didn't already exist? And I think Midnight Rider is the same way. I mean, if somebody told you that Midnight Rider was essentially an adaptation of like some nineteen twenties, uh, you know, early blues thing or something that Greg had had reworked, you would have to believe it because how, who else could who else could write a song that is basically just one repeating riff, short verses that just talk about you know what a Been bad on the run yeah what a bad duty is you know uh nothing gets him down and he's not gonna get caught and all that and uh and the fact that, again that a 20 or 21 year old guy sat down and wrote that song it's just kind of hard to it's hard to understand how that could have even happened
1: it's almost i don't feel like it's a braggart braggart song at all i think it's like a it's like it, it's a tribute in a way to robert johnson who you know wrote a song like hellhound on my trail yeah that's right. And this is the modern uh, modern take on that theme you know i you know i gotta run to keep from hiding i'm bound to keep on riding and i'm not gonna let them catch me i'm not gonna let them catch the midnight rider and there's these great images like i don't own the clothes i'm wearing you know and the road's gonna go on forever uh, what great, great, you know, I've gone past the point of caring, you know, some old bed I'll soon be sharing. And by
2: the way, you've now recited the entirety of, of the lyrics <laughs> to the song. That's it.
1: Well, I'm just remembering that's, the verses yeah. off the top of my head. That's so, what I'm so, saying. They're so
2: short and simple. It's amazing.
1: Yeah. And it's also Dwayne on acoustic guitar, which is something he didn't often play. Uh, with the band on studio. Uh, it's Basically, this and Little Martha, I think you know. You
2: know Actually, Trouble right. No More had has uh, in the studio version has an acoustic bed too. Has an
1: acoustic. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, there you go. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's 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 such an effective. Uh, the song feels like yeah, he's being chased by like you know, there's dogs and prison guards coming after. In fact, <laughs> I'll tell you yeah, you know, my embarrassing TV ad memory when it comes to Midnight Rider is the 2003 era Fox TV show Prison Break. Uh, which is you know this this dumb show about a guy who, who actually gets himself sent to prison so he can break his brother out of prison. Uh stupid, but uh I, the ads were always set to Midnight Rider and it shows them like running across streams in orange jumpsuits and stuff like that. You know, and it's yeah. very appropriate. That song is infinitely adaptable to all sorts of it,
2: teams. This was the song uh that when I was when I was a college student I had kind of an acoustic country band. I mean you could have said bluegrass because we had a fiddle in a mandolin but i was calling the shots and we played a lot of hank williams songs and uh the band songs but our opening number uh virtually every time we played was midnight rider and it it gets people's attention
1: i'll tell you about another song on this record that of course got a lot of people's attention is Dickie Betts' first major effort with the allman brothers and this is the beginning of i think truly great instrumental tracks from the allman's and i'm talking obviously about in memory of elizabeth reed who knows who elizabeth reed is i've i've read the stories you know you can go online find a wikipedia it's like it's a name that was changed for some very attractive woman who was dating another guy but i love liz reed as a name it sounds so southern gothic and everything about the the opening of that song it's a two part piece right it begins with this very kind of you know steamy dank groove just feels like you know the humidity. Georgia in the summertime is just coming up. You, know, you can just see the steam coming up off the ground after the rain. Uh, it's so swampy. And then, halfway through, just do, boom, immediate shift to the... dum And then it's the twin, Dickie and Dwayne guitars. Uh, this is probably to this day remains the most famous Allman Brothers instrumental of all time. Some people might argue it's Jessica. I still think it's Liz Reed. Uh, and I think another miracle of it is, is as great as the live versions are, and of course there are many of them, and the Fillmore East one is the most famous, this studio version is says everything that needs to be said as well. It's just as good. <laughs>
0: Alluded to earlier, this is the best studio album from the Allman Brothers Band. This is my favorite studio album, and you mentioned uh, Elizabeth Reed, which is a Dickie Betts track. He also wrote the first song on Idlewild South, which is a wonderful song called Revival. And if you are uh, uh, new, you might think, well, that's an instrumental too. The lyrics don't kick in until about 90 seconds down the road, but. It's a great song, a wonderful arrangement, too, uh, for a Dick, Dickie Betts track with this uh, sort of gospel-esque arrangement. There's church-like hand clapping. There's a tambourine at times. Uh, and, and, again, very simple, direct lyrics. People, can you feel it? Love is everywhere. Sometimes yeah, it's the you'll hippiest see, song that they have. Yes, yeah. right. Sometimes you'll see Love is Everywhere in, in parenthesis after revival. But it's a great uh, start to the album. It's one of my favorite songs on the album. Sold this record for me. And it's not one that I necessarily hear a lot of discussion about, although I'm not in the Allman Brothers, you know, fan club circles as you two are. I really like Please Call Home, which is a Greg Allman song. I I, I guess I'd describe it as sort of Southern Southern soul. Um I love those descending chords just after that chorus, the Please Come Home chorus. Allman's piano is wonderful. Uh that's really and I like it I mean we're talking about Allman's solo album in a bit but I, I like this version so much better than the one that's on even Ullman's uh, uh, solo uh, album Please Call Home is, is a real highlight of this so
3: go on I won't say no more my heart...
0: Like that hoochie coochie man, Willie, Dex, uh, Willie Dixon cover, which is played very fast, very quick tempo. And, that's and Barry one.
1: Oakley on vocals. They got yes, their basses the basses together their singing and he does just as good a job as all the others. <laughs> it's like everybody in the band apparently can sing, which is a funny, you know, thing. Greg Allman's death obviously overwhelms them, but you know, Barry Oakley, Dickie Betts. Even Dwayne, they all had pretty cre- credible singing voices.
2: Yeah, the Hoochie Coochie Man cover is a great example again of them taking an old blues song and arranging it in a way that fit this band. I mean, it's I mean it's it's wildly different from any other version of that song that you're going to hear. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, Hendrix
1: did a cover of it, of course I've heard the original Willie Dixon version, and yeah. it ain't nothing like this. This it's like
2: <laughs> a couple of rattlesnakes playing guitar. Honestly, like it just it's it the, the guitar <clears throat> parts are just like spitting fire at you. It's really terrific. So, Jeff, uh, something you said about the the kind of haunting, swampy, southern steaminess and all of that this mm-hmm. this is, I think, a great uh, this is a great album to kind of draw that distinction between the kind of two worlds of southern rock. And I would say, by the way, the inheritors of this album more than anyone else are probably the Robinson Brothers, um, the, the Black Crows. You know, Black the, Crows. That's that that's the kind of gothic, kind of scary. You know. Uh, uh, southern i mean you know this is sort of a flannery o'connor's south you know <laughs> uh people are getting murdered and running from the police and things it's like midnight that
1: midnight in the garden of good and evil kind of south yeah right yeah. that's right. right yeah
2: yeah and uh and so i think of like you know if if i were going to visualize this uh record in a southern town it would probably be savannah with the spanish moss you know that kind of thing mm-hmm. uh more right. than uh atlanta so it's it, it, that vibe is is consistent throughout I, I mentioned before... Oh, actually, okay, I want to say two two things real quick. One is on Please Call Home. I think it is a great song. I've kind of had to, to fall in love with it, fall out of love with it, and fall back in love with it because I do think it is Dwayne's weakest guitar playing in his career. Um, I think that the fills he plays are really boring and derivative. They're basically just... He's alternating between major and minor pentatonic licks that uh, he could have played probably when he was 16. And, uh, and compare it to Hey Jude and the... Unbelievable uh, work that he does again on the first half of that song, and I think that was the first thing that irritated me about this. And then the lyrics to this song, to, to "Please Go Home," are are pretty goofy. I mean, uh, <laughs> I know you're used to running, you're lost, baby, and I ain't funnin'. I, I mean, Greg wasn't a great lyricist, but that was not <laughs> his best effort uh but with that said, I do think it's a terrific song. there's a uh, a pretty recent tribute concert that you can find. I think the records' called all my Friends and Sam Moore from Sam and Dave sings this song and that when I heard that a few years ago, it kind of woke me up to what a what a high quality uh r and b song it is um and uh <clears throat> and then uh don't keep me wondering and leave my blues at home. That's the funkiness that I was saying. you kind of start to get a glimpse of and on uh uh the first album but it really comes through on those two tracks and uh, again it 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 just speaks to how how what these guys were were basically trying to be and they despite themselves i think wound up doing a lot of other stuff like in memory of elizabeth reed which I, i think is unquestionably the best song that dickie wrote the best instrumental dickie wrote um But with "Leave My Blues at Home" and and "Don't Keep Me Wondering," they're really kind of trying to, you know, Dwayne's uh, guitar in those tracks is basically a horn section. They just didn't happen to have any horns, so he had to be the horn section, you know. But the way he, the way he plays on on those tracks, that's kind of what's going on there. And The last thing I'll say about this is it's not so much on revival, but in memory of Elizabeth Reed is a great example uh, Jeff you're right. It's a terrific studio cut as great as the live re- re- Recordings are there's nothing missing from this uh, recording and Dickey I think plays his best guitar both in the studio and live on this track which makes all the sense in the world but the weird thing is Dickey writes these songs and Dicky plays them beautifully and yet the songs that Dickey writes and This is going to be true on the next record too, Dwayne plays the greatest guitar solos, I mean, yeah. he, you know, he's so, he's so great. It's like dicky wrote these songs for Dwayne to play. You know what I mean? Right. And, uh, so it's like Dicky is at his peak and we're going to talk about what happens when Dicky's in charge later on. But when Dickie was in Dwayne's band, it was like the best possible combination. Cause, cause Dickie was this, you know, he was unquestionably the second banana, but he knew how to, how to be there and kind of, uh, allow Dwayne to take things to new levels. I mean, it's really amazing how Dickie wrote these songs. "Lizard" is the best example where he's great and the song is great and it's perfect for this band, and it also gives Dwayne a stage that he, you know, lights on fire every time.
1: Well, not only that, but not even just the solos, but but the way Betts wrote the actual, the written, comp, the composed part of the song... It was clearly designed for those just tightly twinned guitars playing in like, you know, harmonic thirds half the time. You know, do-do-do, do-do-do-do-do-do-do. All of it is written as if they are like following each other on. I think it's like skiers going down a ski slope in parallel. They zoom and they zig and they zag at the same time. You know, <clears throat> clearly written with two guitars in mind, which is, by the way, one of the things where... When you listen to later performances of it after Dwayne has, has died uh it's such a different sounding song you know until they get a second guitarist in the band uh it, it never quite works the same way without the twin guitars and that of course is what defines the early Almond brothers in terms of you know their 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 electric sound is that the stuff is just so tightly composed for the both of them Uh, I think people tend to underrate Dickie Betts as a soloist, I think, because, you know, he's obviously, as you said, second banana to Dwayne. But, man, I I think he he shows a lot of flash and a lot of fire, and I think a lot of that shows up on what's going to be their next album, uh, which is not a studio album at all. But before we get to that, I just want to point out that it's Idlewild South that brought the almonds and specifically Dwayne Allman, to the attention of none other than Eric Clapton. Who happened to be recording an album eh, with Tom Dowd in Criterion Studios in Florida? And that, of course, is the album that would soon become "Layla and Other Assorted Love Songs." Now, I just, you know, I can't pass up the opportunity to see if there's anything anyone wants to say about this, for the simple reason that, yeah, you know, I, I don't think I'm ever going to do an Eric Clapton episode because <laughs> I've said too many mean things about him at this point to ever get someone to want to come on the show. I was
3: talking, and I thought I knew Nothing in this world make me stay. I'd rather.
1: thoughts on Dwayne's contribution
2: to Layla it's terrific Uh, it, it is interesting that that you know he so for whatever reason they laid that that record out uh chronologically the first three tracks they recorded are the first three tracks on the album and those are the three tracks that Dwayne's not on and they're probably I mean they're at least three of the the best songs on the record um, but but still, when Dwayne shows up to to be, what they begin with, um, nobody knows you when you're down and out. Is that the first track? I think that he's on. I believe so. Yeah. Yeah, and then uh, why does love got to be so sad? Is uh, you know he makes that song what it is. I think it's a it's a good it's a good enough song, but Dwayne makes it into a song that you can listen to on repeat for an hour. Uh, and then Layla itself would obviously not be the same song without without Dwayne. He literally wrote the riff that makes it such a famous song. Um, so I, I think that every and then
1: Clapton subtracted it for that horrible, unplugged. Cover.
2: <laughs> God. Look, if we need to trash Clapton for a while, we can, we we can do that. But, but the <laughs> we combination, do we,
1: can do yeah. we can do it when the mic, when yeah. the tape turns That's off, right. it but, but
2: the combination of Clapton and Dwayne really does work. And I, and again, I mean, and the rest of that band too. I mean, um, that, yeah, Carl that,
1: rado and Bobby Whitlock. Bobby Whitlock, yeah. huge contributor to the writing of these songs.
2: And, and well, again, those right. first three tracks that Dwayne's not on are still great. So you know, for whatever treatment you're going to give uh, the album someday, those I think you guys actually said that "Bell Bottom Blues" yeah. is your favorite song. Yeah, Dwayne's not indeed. on that, you know. And right. I think keep on growing. And especially, I looked away the first track on that record. Th- those are great too. But Dwayne showing up makes it does just take it to another level, and it's uh it's a great it's a great thing. And in their later years, the Almonds and then late and and Derek Trucks and his bands would kind of take on the mantle of keeping those Derek and the domino songs alive. They, the, the Almond Brothers covered at least three of them, and uh, and Derek and his wife Susan Tedeschi continue to cover some of them to this day.
0: Scott, we talked a lot about this yeah. on uh, the last uh, exclusive of episode uh, about later as an album and 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 Almond's contribution. And as I said at the start of the show. I think his contributions to this record is probably uh, my introduction to the Allman Brothers as a band. And Clapton wanted, Clapton wanted to steal him. <laughs> he wanted him to become a permanent member. And I guess for a day or two or three, that was the case before Dwayne Ullman changed his mind and came back to the Allman Brothers band and that idea uh, behind the Allman Brothers band. Uh, you know, the two drummers, two guitars, and, and what he wanted to see it uh, become. But yeah, as, as Andrew mentioned, you know, my favorite song of the album, he's not even on, which is Bell Bottom Blues. Uh, it's not to take away from his, his work on the rest of the album, but, but, uh, but man, that's a great song. He's, uh, he's outstanding. He's just, he's just so good.
1: I actually really love those two long jams, long rock jams on the album. Not the blues track so much as, uh, you know, Any Day, which we talked about, uh, when, you know, we talked about on our, one of our most recent Patreon episodes with the one shot bands episode, um but also keep on growing just uh, you know this almost effortless like seven minute long lumbering rocker that's perfect it's just Clapton and Allman trading licks endlessly you could just see them playing off of one another in the studio like I don't know if this was overdone but it doesn't feel like it was it feels like they were both like <clears throat> standing eye to eye you know in separate booths across from one another, just like feeding off of each other's energy. like a light touch to a song like I am yours, you know, which is you know the exact opposite of that. And yeah. And yeah. then there's the the crazy remake of Little Wing, which sounds absolutely nothing like the original Jimi Hendrix version. And it's often almost equally as valid, which is a miracle, frankly. They they totally rewrote the song, which is kind of the way that the Almond brothers would rewrite some of their covers. And then they, they make it this thundering Endlessly, you know, reverberating Titanic track. Um, it's a magnificent album. It is, you know, as Scott, and I have said a billion times, it's pretty much, other than Blind Faith, which is, I think, more Steve Winwood than Eric Clapton. It's the only Eric Clapton album I ever care to hear. So. Yeah. I think you know, that
2: like, that Dwayne had been excited about it too because he had clearly been into Cream. There's mm-hmm. a Crossroads cover in the in the yeah. I think, in the Almond right. Joy's. And he's a huge Yardbirds the, fan too. Yeah, and there's a yeah. spoonful thing, which I assume uh, he, he I mean, obviously he at least knew that that Cream was doing that. And I think I was actually thinking about this um, listening to the Almond Joy's uh, when I was in the car earlier today. That you can also hear Greg kind of sounding more like Jack Bruce than he certainly did when he was doing his own thing later on, on those, uh, on those early recordings. So I think that getting to play with, with Clapton who, you know, by then was already, you know, Clapton is God, um, was probably a big deal for Dwayne. And I can understand how it would tempt him to get away from his band, but, you know, and as we're about to get back into, to the almonds piece, and it does just remind you that this was Dwayne almonds band, you know? And so when he, when, if he was thinking about going and playing with Clapton, he had to know he was giving up the band that he owned.
1: And I don't think you can ever say Dwayne Allman more fully owned a band than on one of the most iconic live albums ever released. I mean, maybe one day we'll do a best live albums episode. This is Scott. This will be Scott's nightmare. because Scott generally doesn't <laughs> care for live albums. I don't, this is like I have constantly said his one big flaws a music lover. Um, but at Fillmore East, uh, comes out i believe in like
4: july september
1: july july of 71 it's recorded in march um and the funny thing about this is i don't think i've ever really up until just recently when we were doing the show heard this the way it was originally released because the way i first got it was as the quote the fillmore concerts which is this reissue that has the complete set throws in a track from like you know, July of that year and Tom Dowd remixed it and like, you know, extended some of the stuff that had been edited on the original release. You know, he spliced together two separate versions of Elizabeth Reed and all that. Some of the purists hate it. I still think that's my preferred way to hear it. I prefer his mix to the original mix, but there's just no getting around the fact that this is, this is, this is the album that broke the almonds. you know, just right as tragedy was about to strike. This is the album that finally made them breakthrough, made them huge. Uh, I cannot argue with anybody who thinks that it is one of the greatest live records of all time, but every time I listen to the original release, I find myself thinking, well, why don't I hear Trouble No More? Where's Where's Don't Keep Me Wondering? Where's Done Somebody Wrong? I, like, I want to hear all the songs that were on the release that I first heard back in the mid-90s, which is wildly ahistorical. <laughs> That's a minor quibble this is one of the most fantastic dynamic live records i have ever heard it is a vindication of everything that Duane's original conception of the almonds ever stood for if you want to disagree with me now is the time to take your hot take
2: take that hot
0: i don't think so it's here's one of the great compliments i'd give to (laughs) philmore is is when i listen and and thinking back to the first times that i did listen i never paid attention to um track length right i mean a lot of these go uh double digit minutes uh stormy mondays nine minutes it never feels forced. It never feels there. It never feels like the band is playing just to play, or playing to, to fill time, or playing because. Well, I guess we should make this a bit longer. Uh, though they are jams, they, they they are purposeful, and everything works and has a place and makes sense in the scope of the song. Um, I love the way this is sequenced, as if a dare. You have four. Uh, covers, and then the three, you know, Almond Brother original songs to close things out. Like, here, here are some classic songs that we're going to interpret and do a little differently. And by the way, you know, we have Dwayne Allman and Dickie Betts to play guitar. And uh, you like those? Okay, well, here's three of our own. Let's see how they stack up. And of, of course, they do uh, as, a, as a unit, as a piece it's just an outstanding album. The, the 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 joy that is palpable of these musicians playing and interacting is part of what makes this so special. Uh, no overdubs. I think Dwayne was the stickler on that, right? Then we're going to go back in studio and try to recut this or recut that or do a new vocal line. This is all uh, literally from the stage. Something I'll mention to perhaps start the conversation is... Uh, I I wanted to get to this in the last album, but it fits in well here. Uh, You know, we've talked a lot about Greg Allman, who sings and and plays the organ, and we've talked a lot about the the guitar players, rightfully so. Uh, Let me take a moment here to talk about how important Barry Oakley is to the Allman Brothers band. You know, there's no rhythm guitar in the Allman Brothers band. And so what, what holds things together? Partially Allman and the organ, but... Oakley does such a magnificent job on these songs, um, being the well the bassline, literally and figuratively, being that thing that sort of holds things together uh, on these on these two well two of the originals here, "Whipping Post" and, and "Hot Lanta." Uh, Oakley's bass playing is just incredible. On on a "Hot Lanta," those high-speed runs, those melodic counterpoints he's playing—they're magnificent. whipping post and certainly there's a lot of attention paid to the solos the the guitar solos here which again are incendiary but um i gotta point you to listen specifically to oakley during those solos you know during Dwayne's solo uh in whipping post uh, th- th- at least the the early one i have some time stamps here um holy crap i mean he's he's just playing this unbelievable groove underneath and allowing Dwayne Allman to do his thing. Oakley's bass playing is so important to the band and is so prominent and magnificent on Fillmore East. And and I, I think it gets lost a bit in sort of the guitar dynamics and pyro not pyrotechnics but just the the how how, how well these guys play, how much attention is paid to how they play off each other. Bets and, and and Dwayne Allman. Barry Oakley's bass playing is so important and such a huge part of what makes these songs really. Uh, spark live
2: I think everything you said there is right Dwayne obviously just drew all these guys in and they all were feeding off of him I mean his you know the way if you if you read the way uh, he talked about Greg you know uh, or talked to Greg you know evidently he was pretty hard on on Greg but would also praise him in front of other people things like that Um, Barry Oakley came in with Dickie Betts but you would never have known that he and Dwayne hadn't been playing forever for exactly the reason you were talking about JMO is the same way where when on this version of Liz Reed, when Dwayne brings the the kind of the volume and the temperature down for you know 30 seconds during his guitar solo, the drums and the bass come, you know, they follow him <laughs> in, in perfect sync. Uh, and so I think all these guys, including including Barry, at least as much as the rest, um, <clears throat> they really understood, w- you know, where Dwayne was trying to take the band uh, when he was doing his guitar solos. Yeah. This version of of, uh, of In memory of Elizabeth Reed, it probably is my favorite version. I'm not sure that means it's the best version, but you know, it is a high quality audio recording. I mean, Jeff, I know you've probably listened to dozens of versions of, of, uh, of a of lot of these point, songs. At this
1: point, yeah, no, but but you know what, you, this is probably still the one. Yeah,
2: I, I think Dwayne's Solo on that on that track is uh, it's, I mean, it's what probably three minutes long. Um, it's totally flawless. It really just it it gets you to understand why why guitar players think of him as you know such a such a legend uh it's it's just not easy to to be out there play play a 3 minute guitar solo do the dynamics he does change the scales up a little bit um and it's uh it's it's such a beautifully written song as you said about the studio version uh but yet this live version it's it's i mean it's it's uh it's sort of like a uh i i don't want to say it's better because i agree that the studio version is a great studio recording uh but this song as a live as a live track just has a life of its own
1: I love the most about these Fillmore concerts, and, and there's there's a lot of stuff that's been released from this era. There's a, a whole Fillmore West 1971 mm-hmm. set that came out not too long ago. That was from January of this year, and it's soundboards. It's not multi-track, so it's a lot rougher sounding. But uh, you know, you can hear them. They're playing the same material. They're kind of banging it into shape. You can hear them just right before they've nailed. The sort of the the crescendos and decrescendos the rises and falls of the longer tracks everything kind of comes into place that's great and then of course you've got you know i have the full six cd set that was released of all the Fillmore concerts and i literally spent a lot of time a and being tracks to see exactly how they edited <laughs> things and piece things together because I'm, I'm a dork like that you know um It's the flow of the full show, which is why I always prefer either the deluxe at Fillmore East edition. uh, It's a two CD one, which restores the full flow of the concert, more or less, uh, and or the Fillmore concerts, because it's the way that they open with, like, you know, as Scott pointed out, this this blast of cover songs, uh, you know, Statesboro Blues, Trouble No More. Then they go to like some of the shorter, like they're short originally, don't keep me wondering, done somebody wrong. They're really just hitting you. Bam, 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 bam. Tough, sweaty, hardcore blues rock. Then they slow down with Stormy Monday, right? Really long, bluesy jam. Um, uh, Then they go into like the big, long, dreamy stuff. Liz Reed. You Don't love me, which starts off as this old blues song but then just goes into some wild improvisation. Uh, and then what I love is how they start getting weird <laughs> by the end of the show, they get really, really weird. So, like, there's Hot Lana, right? Which you know, you think it's going to be just this really kind of tight in- blues instrumental. They never recorded it in the studio, they should have. It's a great song, uh, great original instrumental, but then by the end of it. Then they're all just sort of like, you know, pinging feedback and hitting these dreamy notes. And then it almost starts to sound spacey like a Grateful Dead number. Yeah, it
2: does remind you there is a psychedelic light show happening during these concerts, right? Like Exactly. The The Fillmore
1: East, right? And the same thing happens with Whipping Post, right? Whipping Post, there's no drum solo. Whipping Post is like 20 minutes long or something like that. Actually, I think it's like, like, I just looked, it's 23 minutes long. All right. Would you believe? Then in a 23-minute long song, not once at any point is there a drum solo. (laughs) Nope. Not once. I'm so impressed. It's just Dwayne and Dickie spitting hot fire with Barry Oakley going underneath the whole time. It's amazing. But by the end of it, the fire dies away. And it's almost like like ashes are smoldering up. And they're just sort of like feeling out the space of the room.
2: The timpani comes out.
1: Exactly. Exactly it's again the almonds they had their blues rock brand uh they also had that psychedelic sensibility to them as well out at the ends of those songs it also comes out you know in mountain jam but i figure we can leave that for eat a peach which comes next i'll just say that i have listened to At Fillmore east in one of its various forms probably a hundred times in my life And and every time i throw it on i don't get tired of it you know assuming it's not too late at night and i'm not all right tired if i put it on track one i'm listening it all the way through to the end It is one of the truly definitive live albums in popular music history. It made the band's career and their reputation. Uh, It made them superstars. Everything was looking up for this group. And then all of a sudden, Dwayne Allman gets on his motorbike and eat a peach, dude. Uh, And that's the tragedy of the Allman Brothers, is that at the height of their powers, while they are beginning to record their next album... um, Dwayne Alton dies in a motorcycle accident. A truck pulls out in the middle of an intersection. He's got to swerve to avoid it. Horrible accident. He dies at the hospital three hours later from massive internal injuries. Uh, what can you say? It, it just, except to just wonder what might have been, what could have been. Uh, this isn't like Jim Morrison dying out of an overdose when it was obvious he was, gonna, you know, he was on the down slope long ago. This is something just cut down in the prime of their life, in the prime of their musical career. Uh, it's funny. I was uh, This happened eight years, nine years before I was born, but it hurts, even me now to this day, to think about it. And it's amazing that the Allman Brothers even found the power to carry on, which is what they did with their next record.
2: Yeah, luckily they had three studio tracks in the can when Dwayne died. And uh, it, I guess <coughs> it, it, those are kind of uh, opposite of the way uh, I mentioned Derek and the Dominoes that record's laid out where the, the first three tracks they recorded before Dwayne showed up are the first three tracks in this case the, the album is laid out in kind of a funny way where it's the three tracks that they recorded after Dwayne died then three more tracks from the Fillmore East recordings and then the three tracks the three last tracks that uh, that Dwayne uh, ever uh, ever recorded in the studio and uh, I guess I'll just I'll start there and say that stand back where Dwayne plays the uh, the slide guitar again, essentially replacing a horn section. I mean, on Greg's live record a couple of years later, there is a horn section playing the same thing that Dwayne is playing on the slide guitar. You take tracks like that and Statesboro Blues, and it really reminds you like contemporary slide guitar playing was was basically invented by two people. One is Johnny Winter, who, who stayed a little closer to the way people like Muddy Waters and, and early slide players had done it, and he just did it at a, you know another speed. But the way Dwayne played uh, with a, a lighter slide on his finger, the, the medicine bottle that he learned to play with, and, and he was kind of inspired by Jesse Ed Davis playing Statesboro Blues on a Taj Mahal record. Uh, but tracks like Statesboro Blues and then Stand Back, again, the last slide track that he recorded, it just shows you how he uh, found a way to manipulate a guitar with a slide in a brand new way. And, you know, Derek Trucks is essentially uh, the, the, the logical, you know, end point of that, where that guy's entire career has essentially been taking Dwayne Allman's, you know, method of playing guitar and, uh, and, and just doing it all the time. Uh, But, but stand back. It's, It's one of my favorite tracks. Again, it's a very funky song. It's got kind of, kind of funny lyrics. Uh, again, sort of a cynical, you know, uh, my my girlfriend's terrible kind of set of lyrics from Greg Hallman, <laughs> right? Uh, like so many of his other songs, I guess. Uh, and it also follows the same format that lots of his songs, including uh, "Ain't Wasting Time" on this record, uh, follow, where his verses, you know, that's the the chorus is basically just the tag end of every verse. There's not really a separate chorus to most of Greg's early songs, uh, and then there's a bridge, and then there's a fantastic guitar solo in this case. Uh, and then another another verse and out uh, so the, these last few tracks uh, from Dwayne it's, it's really it's one of these things where kind of like Otis Redding he's doing they're doing something kind of new right at the time when he dies <laughs>
0: Peach was the first Ullman Brothers record I heard because they had it at the local library. So
2: That was definitely true for me. It's exactly <laughs> the same.
0: Um, and, I mean, I like virtually every track here, and yet I always have a hard time putting it in context. The way it's structured, with three uh, post-Dwayne songs first, three live tracks in the middle, the three pre-death uh, tracks where he plays on last... It's always so segmented in my mind as I, I listen. It's hard to take it as a, as a unit, as an album. It's not an outtake, odds and sods kind of album. But at the same time, I'm not sure there's a, uh, you know, a thematic sort of <laughs> push to it other than Dwayne was really awesome and we're going to miss him, right?
1: Hey, um, by the way, Scott, I don't think either of you guys own the original vinyl like I do,
0: do you? No. Oh, I do, yeah. I don't.
1: It, well, because it was way weirder on its original vinyl. It wasn't structured like that at all. In its original version, it was the the post-Dwayne tracks on side one. Then side two is Mountain Jam part one. <laughs> That's right. Then side three <laughs> are the Dwayne tracks. Well, there's another live song, a couple more live tunes, and then the other Dwayne stuff. And then part four, the last part of the album, is just Mountain Jam part two. And well, that seems incredibly bizarre. They've reorganized it for every CD release. But they you know read- why that is, right? Yeah, I I was oh okay. I was going to explain it, but why don't you explain it to people? That that that's a function of the weird way that record players right. and record changers work. So, so it, it, t- tell the folks.
0: It depends on the kind of record player you, you had, but this this the one my dad had when I was growing up. You know, you could stack the records, and as one would finish, it would pop the next one down, and and you know automatically restart. You know, there's an automatic restart to the beginning of of the next record. And so, if you're listening to "Eat a Peach" and you wanted to hear all the Mountain Jam, well, you couldn't have it on, you know, you had to. You, had, it couldn't, you
1: couldn't be have, on right. You couldn't be on the B side of disc one and the A side of disc two, because correct? Because the record player couldn't handle that, right?
0: Right. So, the, if you had it on two and four, which is the way you describe it, you, it could, it could, you could listen to side, listen to the first part. Wait a few seconds as the record player would reset itself, drop the next disc down, and then start playing again.
2: And this was necessary because it's over half an hour, and luckily there's minutes. yeah, there's a <laughs> five minute drum section where nobody notices if you have to switch from disc one to disc two.
1: And that's exactly where they do the cut, right? Uh, and the thing is, is like you know, if you're like me and you just had a primitive record player that just one tone arm, one record player, it was very strange to go like, okay, here's this, flip this, okay, this is over, what? studio stuff again and then flip that over again was like what more mountain jam made no sense to me back <laughs> in the day it took a long time before i understood how like you know 70s era you know lp player record player technology worked i'm sorry to interrupt but that's a factoid i just could not let go
2: i i think it it does have to be admitted i mean scott's right that this album doesn't have a normal flow i mean it it, it is a strand i suppose a, yeah as we're talking now on vinyl, it was really no better or maybe even a weirder flow. Um, I guess I can't really be denied, but maybe just because I've always been able to kind of conceptualize it as these three little vignettes. It's never bothered me. The, I, I do think that the, I mean, so, so the, the, the Dwayne tracks are stand back, which I already talked about how much I love that song. That's a little weird. I'm pro- probably, uh, in the minority of all brothers fan thinking that that's a really particularly great song, but blue sky, this is Dickie's first vocal beautiful uh dual lead stuff long solos on uh, on a one four chord structure which is you know similar to a bunch of other songs
0: and this is another example of what you were talking about is that Dwayne plays best on Dickie's song I mean yeah, exactly Alwyn's solo is breathtaking it's so great and Betts rises to to meet him to, to follow him They yeah. both play just amazing I
2: completely agree. Exactly. Like, Dickie Rice this great song. His vocal works better on this song, I think, than than basically any track that he recorded since, uh, uh, including Ramblin' Man, which we're we're coming up towards. But this is his first vocal. And his kind of smaller, thinner voice, uh, uh, you know, in contrast to Greg or even to Barry Oakley, um, it just works great on this pretty little, you know, lilting country rock song. And, uh, and Dwayne's solo is incredible on it. Again, like Dickie, Dicky set Dwayne up for some of his greatest stuff. There's a, there are only a, there's like one or two tapes out there. Yeah. Where,
1: some live recordings of this that were there like 10, 13 minutes. Yeah. On They're great. Yeah.
2: And, and Dwayne is like, it's, 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 uh, like an interplanetary adventure. I mean, on, <laughs> on the simplest chord structure possible. I mean, it's, it's just a one, four variation it, it could be a really lazy guitar solo and for neither of these guys you know neither of them do that they uh, they they somehow get very inventive even even in this case And then Lil' Martha is, is the last track uh, on the album. Uh, again, we're kind of talking about it backwards because because that's this is the part that was recorded first, and Dwayne's still there for it. But this is the only song that Dwayne has the full credit for. It's a, a another pretty little song. Uh, my kids fall asleep listening to it all the time. It's on their little uh, uh, you know bedtime playlist, and uh, it's. Jeff, if you want, you could tell the weird story about him having a, a dream or whatever of Jimmy. Hen- what is it, Jimmy Hendrix playing the song on a water faucet or something? Yeah, yeah. I think. Yeah, you've got it there. Right? Yeah, it's so whatever. But it's a great little song, and uh, and uh, again, just kind of a final testimony to Dwayne's leadership in the band, and uh, and and what a you know what a major talent he was, and what a major you know emotional center for these guys he was.
1: didn't give enough, credit, give enough credit to ain't wasting time no more oh well, that's my favorite song. song
2: on the album that is my favorite yeah i'm with you
1: which is the first song that greg wrote right after dwayne died and of course the title couldn't be clearer you know he's just sort of like contemplating oh god my brother's gone the leader of our band is gone what are we gonna do well i'm not wasting any more time on this i've gotta get we gotta you know put our shoulders down and and, and get into this and get get trucking along uh, and it's it's uh geez, I think it might be his best lyric and I think it might be very close to his best song. Uh, the album is disjointed, just for all the reasons that you guys have already discussed uh, but the actual content is, is mm-hmm. inarguable. Uh, there's nothing you can argue about. I really love "Librarian A Minor, um, which is the, uh, the, 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 the obligatory Dickie Betts instrumental track, which seems to you know, be, then become something of a tradition. And it kind of, you know, it, it ends in an ugly way on win, lose, or draw, if you ask me. Oh Oh yes. Oh my God! I
4: don't. I,
1: I do not like high falls. We'll get to that. But uh, I really love this one, and they actually made it into a really great show-stopping live number as well. But I just want to say something about Mountain Jam. There are a lot of people out there who probably don't have time for as you know, Andrew said, like five and a half minutes of the the double drum, the, the JMO and Butch going at it actually like that i don't mind it uh just because they're so rhythmically propulsive they have such a, a greater swing than say uh billy kreutzman and phil and mickey hart did um you know with the dead uh but i just love that basic melody you know that the, they, they stole from donovan you get it. another little tribute to their psychedelic rock roots and this is like a, like a like a 67 era donovan song you know about like first there is a mountain you know the mountain doesn't exist it only becomes one over time the lyrics are gone. All that's left is the melody. And that great little melody was... And then it goes... And again, Dickie and Dwayne intertwining their parts just beautifully on the actually composed part of the song that they'll return to periodically throughout and then and after that it's, everyone goes to town it's 33 minutes long everybody gets their lips. Barry or, Barry gets a bass solo Dickie and Dwayne step out on guitars both solo and in tandem they've got the drum solo the double drum section um, there are a bunch of mountain jams this is the the, the least compositionally focused aspect of the early Allman Brothers. Some people get tired of it. I could listen. I've got like 17 versions of Mountain Jam on my hard drive right now. I sometimes put all (laughs) of them into a row and just like all day I'll do work and I'll just have them all going in the background.
0: Scott, you probably want to talk about Melissa before we leave. This. I want to say something about any waste of time, but why don't you talk about Melissa if you want to? I think it's the one song we haven't mm-hmm. mentioned yet, uh, but it does date back some years. I think we mentioned earlier, it was probably Dwayne's, it sounds like Dwayne's favorite song that Greg ever wrote, dating back to, I think, 68 or so. And um, that's one of my first Almond Brothers memories, too, was hearing uh, Melissa. And what a beautiful, gentle, moving ballad. I, you know, before I sort of dug into the band's history and, and figured out dates and such. I always assumed that was Dwayne, right? I always assumed it was Dwayne playing. Oh, yeah. Those beautiful guitar lines, those pristine little uh, f- lines that kind of float in and out, th- that single note sustain all over the place. I thought it was Dwayne. You know, it's Dicky Dickie, Dickie Betts playing. Um, and it's just really a, a fantastic song, it, written in 67. So even further back than I, I thought. Uh, great soul singing from from Greg This vulnerable and weary voice. Uh, I really have always liked Melissa an awful lot.
2: I think it's great, and both it and "Ain't Wasting Time." Really, this this whole record, again, it speaks to that mood that we were talking about on Idlewild South of, of the kind of gothic, southern thing happening. "Ain't Waste in Time" I think hits that uh, hits that as as well as anything that they did. It is my favorite song on this record. It's probably I, I, it will definitely be in my top five. I haven't decided, you know, like which version of Liz Reed's going to be in there or whatever, but I know for certain that this studio track. Uh, Will be there. The piano intro uh, hits me right every every single time. And then Dickie plays slide on it. Dickie learned slide like on the airplane mm-hmm. to Dwayne's funeral or something ridiculous like that.
1: And he, he ne- doesn't like doing it, but he knows he has to. Yeah. He's like, how right. do they adapt all of their songs?
2: He never became to only great. having
1: one guitarist.
2: Right, right. He, so he had like he, he played slide on Statesboro Blues after this and things like that. He never became great like Dwayne or, or other great slide players. Um, And he he typically sounds and this is true on these on the later records we're going to talk about uh, or maybe try to skip as much of as we can. But the 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 tone Mm. that he got on slide was was always much more trebly and edgy than than uh, what Dwayne did. And I don't usually think it works. I think it's perfect on this track. Um, Right. His his slide playing never gets better than this first track that he does it on. I, I think this is a perfect piece of music. Uh, and like I said, easily a top five uh, choice for me.
1: about this except to add that boy you know there is just no worse combination than drug use and motorcycling
2: uh <laughs> the, oh, one one last note this is yeah? as i as i think i mentioned to you guys this is the only good album title in my opinion <laughs> that the Almond brothers ever had up to the very last one <laughs> and uh and i think it's it's one of their only you know better than average album covers not that this is the most important thing it's obviously they're a great band anyway uh, uh well live at fillmore east that's a great cover that's a, no doubt that's a great cover but other studio records uh, this, this is the only one that's really iconic but it it stuck and like the peach logo became the allman brothers logo you know if you went to a concert and got a tour t-shirt i guarantee you there was a peach on it somewhere
1: it even spawned like one of the great urban myths of rock which is right. that you know, that, that Dwayne Alman died hitting a peach truck. So, like, in, in a sort of joking sense, they called it Eat a Peach, Dude. Like, and yet,
4: that's and right. Eating it, by smashing and, into it.
2: And as a farewell to Dwayne, like, the weirdness of it being a hybrid live and studio thing, Dwayne had this, he said at one point, like, anyone can make a great record. I want to know if you can do a great performance. And, uh, and um, you know, in contrast to this, I mean, at this point, were the dead doing, were the dead doing uh, uh, wildly different set lists every night, Jeff? oh yes absolutely in yeah. 1972
1: for yes and for, i mean although all really all the way through their career frankly
2: and the yeah. almonds did not at this point they played more or less the same set you know at a time i mean with you know it, it evolved like by the end as we were saying like blue sky had worked its way into the last month or so of their shows but but their set list was was pretty much the same all the time and i think that 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 spoke to what Dwayne was saying, which, which was, I want to put on a great performance. It's kind of like a, a improvisational and maybe less psychotic version of Ronnie Van Zant insisting that his guys play the songs the same way every time. That's not what Dwayne was looking for, but he was looking for, you know, really high quality performances. Um, because he didn't, he thought that going into the studio and doing a great record, he, he thought it was easy. Well, I don't think it's easy, but I do think this, this album is kind of a weird, you know, combination of, of showing that you can do both if you're a really great artist. And that's what they did.
1: He wanted he wanted the guys in the band to be on point, and he wasn't afraid to tell them if he thought that they were slipping. And, of course, one of the problems after he died is that some of them did. And and some of them, and one of them in particular, was Barry Oakley, who, as you know, often said, just never really quite got over the death of Dwayne Allman. He was haunted by it. He felt terrible about it, and he descended into drugs, into drinking. And, you know, stories would say, I haven't actually heard any tapes of these sorts of incidents, but there, there would be, you know, t- you know, apparently concerts where, you know, he'd be either too drunk or high and he'd just be out after like the first two songs. And they might even have to get someone to come on and deputize for him on bass because he wasn't available to play. Um, so he was obviously, you know, in a downward spiral. And then of course, what happens is just a few weeks into the sessions for their next album. Uh, he, dies in a motorcycle accident in eerily similar circumstances to the way that Dwayne Alman did. In fact, only a few blocks away from where Dwayne died. This is why I said drugs and motorcycling kids don't mix them. That just doesn't seem to ever end. Well, uh, I'll bet that, you know, he probably wasn't even wearing a helmet either.
2: Um,
1: <laughs> so he only, pl- he's he only repeatedly
2: placed- not a good rider either. Like Dwayne, and, Dwayne and Greg, I think started riding motorcycles and they were really <laughs> young in Daytona, uh, which makes all the sense in the world. Barry was from Chicago, and I think he only picked it up when he was hanging around with Dwayne, and uh, and evidently he wasn't he wasn't a skilled rider in the first place.
1: So he definitely shouldn't have been riding around high. And what happens is that that means that he only plays on two of the songs on their next album, Brothers and Sisters. Uh, and the strange thing about it is that this is actually the apex of the All My Brothers commercial success. This is the big one for them. This is the one that goes to number one on the charts. This is the one that has all the hits that you know that get played on the radio. This is the one that actually I think is a heck of a lot better than I remembered it being. When I was a teenager, college student, getting into the almonds, I actually thought to myself, well, this is kind of a drop-off. The radio hits I knew, I knew from the greatest hits, but then, ah, the rest of this isn't so good. I've come back to it recently. This is a far better album than I remember it being. I think it's actually a genuinely great album. I think one of the things that really, really makes it great, though, is the addition of a pianist, a keyboardist, to play alongside Greg Allman on an organ. And that's a little guy by the name of Chuck Lavelle, who was only 21 years old himself at the time, though you wouldn't know it by the way he played his instrument. Currently, he tours with the Rolling Stones as a permanent member of their touring band. Back then, he was nobody. But he's the guy who you hear banging all around on songs like Jessica, Ramblin' Man, um, and uh, basically almost everything else on this album, an album that I think holds up a lot better than I ever used to think when I was young. Well,
3: all day in half the night You're walking around looking such afraid God, is it me or is it you?
2: On, on the first Neil Young episode you guys did one of you mentioned a uh, test of five five albums that get five stars like that's kind of a you know a mark mm-hmm. of true greatness i obviously i'm i'm this is one of my two favorite bands so uh, but i'm there i think that this is a five star record too i i, I kind of had the same experience as you Jeff of sort of thinking like this was this was more of a fall off than i think it really was um and it it showed that there was a version especially when Barry was still there and you know Barry, I think, was kind of the second. If if you listen to live recordings from the Dwayne era, he's usually the person introducing a song, but sometimes it's Barry. It's it's basically never Greg, and it's literally never Dickie, I think. And so Barry was kind of the second frontman, um, in a in a sense. I mean, Dwayne, you know, Dwayne was the MC, and Barry was kind of his, uh, you know, his assistant. And uh, and so there, it, this this record does kind of go to show that, and and I agree that even the tracks without Barry are, are, are also pretty good. Um, uh, it's is it Lamar Williams? I think is the, the name yep. of the bass player that yeah. re- yeah. re- replaces him. Yeah, he, he fits in just fine musically. Uh, but I but I do think that as time will tell, Barry's departure uh, was was one blow too many for the band.
0: Uh, maybe I just need a few more spins because I I don't think this is five star um i don't i don't think it's uh, on the level of the, of the albums that preceded it uh, i think it's the first album that clearly isn't perfect so to speak um although it's still very good it's it's, it's, it's we're, we're gonna get farther down There's are gonna be a much bigger drop off to come so i don't want to i want to make this out to be some sort of massive decline in musicians the band still sounds really good chuck lavelle is a tremendous addition who also by the way played on the first black crows album he played on shake your Moneymaker. Uh, yeah. um and Lamar Williams on bass is, is more than competent uh, filling in for Oakley on the rest of the tracks after the first two. I, you know, Dickie Betts writes a lot more here. He's written <coughs> wrote, uh, wrote five of the seven tracks, wrote, wrote five of the seven tracks on this record, partially because you would think that Greg's working on his own solo album in the midst of when Brothers and Sisters is being recorded. And so there's a little bit of internal strife about that. It doesn't quite show up on, on the tracks here, but there's that element that it, that plays in here. Uh, there's a middle section here that I don't love, and I think I'm in a minority, and that's okay, I guess. But, you know, Come and Go Blues, I, I don't think is anything tremendously special. Uh, Jelly Jelly has a couple of really nice solos, but I'm not sold on it. Uh, even Southbound, the percussion is top-notch. Uh, the song itself, though, I'm not sure is really Great. Uh, it's it's surrounded by things that are very good wasted words the opening track is really good That's an almond song one of the few he contributed here uh, Love the riffs the way that they, they sort of mimic the the vocal melody There's a great honky-tonk piano that I assume is Lavelle playing on wasted words It's a wonderful lead-off track to the album later on. You've got Jessica, which is this lengthy instrumental meticulously constructed uh, You know everything is in its place Everything is where it's supposed to be. Uh, It wouldn't work otherwise. I think, talked uh, often about writing instrumentals and how difficult they are because, you know, it's not just this unending series of solos. <clears throat> you have to create this thing that lives on its own and conveys some sort of emotional heft without the benefit of words, without the benefit of lyrics. And it's a tricky thing. Um, he would,
1: it's also the origin of that song is so lovable. He wrote it yes. uh, for his daughter, who like when he was working on the melody at home she would come in she's a little toddler (laughs) she'd come in and just start bouncing around the room you know as he was playing and and she he wanted to come up with a melody that sort of like imitated like like a a little happy small girl jumping around which of course inspired the cover too of the album i'm sorry it's just my my dad instinct coming in there i just find it pretty cute
0: The other one I like is, I think, the, the final track, which is uh, Pony Boy, which is very different. Acoustic slide, upright bass, uh, very, like, Robert Johnson <laughs> influenced here. And I guess about Dickie Betts' uncle, who would ride his horse to avoid being charged with the DUI when he was drunk. Uh, but it's a wonderful <laughs> song musically. Uh, I, I like that a lot. I, I, that, that middle section I'm not sure of, and at least in my ears, it's not really on the level, on the same level as, as those past couple of albums the first the first thing that that isn't quite uh, a five-star entry in their discography
1: i still i just don't think there's anything here i consider to be weak and that's you know my sort of my way of assessing how i feel about an album and i think the best song on the record actually isn't you know jessica and it isn't Ramblin' man which i'll notice none of us have talked about yet. um it i'm going to say it's come and go blues this is the other song that Greg Allman contributes to this record. Uh, it's not one of the more famous Allman Brothers songs. It's not one that usually shows up on their you know their compilations or anything like that. I just think it is such a smooth, beautifully assured blues. I love the changes on that song. And I really love um, the way Allman and Chuck Lavelle, you know, sort of work with one another. Almonds on Oregon, and I think Lavelle is playing both, like normal piano, and he's also playing an electric piano in there somewhere too, overdubbed. Uh, it just works beautifully. The whole song, again, standard almond lyrics. Nothing too serious that you have <laughs> to think about. Yeah, but believe
2: the, it or not, he's having trouble with his girlfriend again.
1: Yeah, would you believe it that he's having woman troubles? I mean, <laughs> who'd have thought, right? Uh, he's only on his
2: third wife at this point, I think too. So. It, it,
1: Oh, your third. Well, we're gonna see what happens (laughs) with number four. Um, But yeah, I just love that song so much. I think it's secretly the best song on the record. to say something about the most famous
2: song of all time first of all i will say i i'm with jeff on the quality of the record and and that that particular song come and go blues i I agree it's a it's a fantastic song um uh, for Ramblin' man i think of it as as a as an annoying little song and the reason (laughs) is because it's the biggest hit like i played uh i played uh, i was playing guitar with some friends uh a few weeks ago and i played ain't wasting time which i just kind of gotten comfortable with an arrangement of with just an acoustic guitar and I was really happy with it and then the very the next question was well can you do Ramblin' Man and I was you know no I'm you not going to do spin. Ramblin' Man but I will tell you when the song comes on I played this record uh for my son the other day when the song comes on I can't help but sing along I think it's a great song I think Butch said he thought it was too too country or something I don't really think that's fair I mean it's it's not that much more country than Than blue sky, it's a little more like Eagles kind of country rock, maybe. Um, So
1: do not do not defoul the good reputation of the Almond Brothers by citing the Eagles. Because
2: I I I, I agree, I do think it's a good song. The only problem is that the recording is like forty five seconds too long. It's got this really long guitar outro where they just repeat the riffs over and over again, and then a slide comes in, and it's all really high pitched and kind of tinny and so I could do without that I think also Dickie complained that the uh, the release version the tape was sped up a little bit and he said it made it sound like a chipmunk I think Dickie just kind of sounded like a chipmunk <laughs> so yeah. I, I don't think it's I don't think it's the the speed um, I heard
1: the live version on the live album they released it's the same pitch it's the same and same way.
2: speed and everything yeah I'm on my way I think it's great, and and so and that's a track again where um where where Chuck coming in on the piano. I mean, it was a conscious decision to not bring in another guitar player, and in fact, I I just read recently that Les Dudek, who plays on uh, on some of this and had a couple of his own records uh, later, he was telling people that he was going to be brought in to the Almond Brothers and um and and the the. The legend is that they went out like looking for him in order to to set the record straight right away that he was not going to be a member of the Almond Brothers as a guitar player. It was not going to happen. That that you know, the empty chair was going to be saved for Dwayne. Um, and uh, and so bringing in Chuck as a piano player it works great. You know, and, and they they do other things too on on uh, both Librarian and A Minor on on Eda Peach after Dwayne has died, and on Jessica. They, uh Greg's organ replaces the the second guitar on like these lead melodies, and it, and it it really does work well. And then they they work Chuck in, uh terrifically his solo on Jessica is I think popularly considered one of the great piano solos in in kind of pop music history. I think that's very fair. If I had to pick a weak track, it would actually be Pony Boy. That's the only one I don't listen to th- that often, but it's not bad at all. And certainly, if the whole record was Ramblin' Man and Pony Boy, it would be a whole lot better than what's coming up next. So. Uh, I, again, I think this is really a great record, and and for me, it, it does kind of meet that that five great albums to start the career uh, kind of test of of true greatness.
1: So I take it you're not a big fan of Greg Allman's solo album Laid Back, because that's what's coming up next.
2: Oh, okay. Well, then uh, I was thinking, just
1: just to discuss I, it briefly because this is <clears throat> this is when the band really starts to fall apart. What what what's the, what's the real spur for it? Well, it's the fact that that Greg wants to sort of I guess break free of what he feels are sort of the restrictive routines of the all my brothers bands recording style and so he says i'm going to record a solo album a lead single from this solo album i genuinely just i don't want to say i loathe it but i hate that remake of midnight rider it was actually originally on the dreams box set that's where i first heard it but like it's pompous it has horns and strings and they're, they're not like good old-fashioned stacked soul horns. No, they they, they they sound more kind of like Hollywood horns. It doesn't work for me at all as a remake. There is much better stuff on that album, by the way. I think he does a cover of Jackson Brown's These Days, which is just a very song. Who hasn't done song. a cover
0: of Jackson Brown's These Days? <laughs>
1: Everybody's done a version of it, right? And it's a song you could basically, you can't screw up. Yeah. It's just a really great song. These days I sit on cornerstones out the time in quarter
3: tones still 10 my friend please don't confront me with my failure I'm aware
1: I like Almond's version of that. Uh, but what's more important for this story is that he goes Hollywood, it is the way the band would accuse him. He moves to Los Angeles again, second time he's done it. So he's no longer living with the rest of the brothers and the family back in Georgia where everybody else is. He's now, you know, doing the Hollywood thing, you know, jet setting out in LA, hanging out with the Moors and Shakers. And of course, what happens is. You know, the stuff of legend. He gets married to Cher. Yeah, that's right. I got you, babe. Gypsies, tramps, and thieves. That Cher. Uh, All men and Cher. They were married for a good three years there in the 70s. Three years that both of them have frequently joked that they prefer to forget ever happened. But unfortunately, I am going to remind you that it happened. Um what then happens is that they have to get back together to record an album. And when they finally reunite in 1975, uh, it's just the worst atmosphere in the world. There's mm-hmm. drugs everywhere. Almond is detached. In fact, I think they actually have to send the master tapes out to Los Angeles yeah. for him to record vocal overdubs because he can't even be bothered to come back home for it. Um, I, I believe Butch Trucks had this great story where I... Like, he accidentally took PCP. How one yeah. accidentally takes PCP. Well, he thought me. it was
0: cocaine. You can't well, blame I, him.
1: I guess I'm not really like into drug culture, but how can you mistake those know. two things? I don't know. One's powder. One's like, on a piece of paper. Whatever. Who cares? And, and, and while he was on this horrible trip for 14 hours, all I could think about was being forced to do take after take after take <laughs> of Dickie Betts' High Falls instrumental. Uh, which is like, you know, you know, one too many passes at the well. Um, it, this is an album, win, lose, or draw, that when it came out, it got you know, some respectable reviews, but everybody hates now. And I wish I could come back and give you a contrarian take on it, but, man, this is just a. Yes. I I don't even like the the muddy waters cover that opens it. Just oh no, that, lose, that, oh, that is good. Yeah, I think That's it's okay. It's okay because it, you know what it is? The thing about Can't Lose What You Never Had is that it still shows some creativity in arrangement. That's almost, you know, there's there's a little I I, I don't want to call it progressive because it's not, yes, for God's sake. But like it's a very interesting arrangement a lot of different stop-starts, mood changes. It's, it, it takes some chances. It's the only thing on this record that takes any chances at all, in my opinion. win loser draw is, I wouldn't call it an inexplicable drop-off because there are a lot of obvious explanations for why it failed. But it is just a huge dip in quality.
0: I agree. Um, it's pretty clear. It's pretty obvious. I don't think anyone's going to listen to this and say, oh, that's just as good as they've always been. And there are myriad reasons why, and Jeff talked about those. There are really only two tracks on here that I think are are worthy of anything. One is "Can't Lose What You Never Had." I think that's actually a pretty darn good song. Uh, Greg did the work here arranging it. He rewrote some of the lyrics too. There's a great piano solo on that old Buddy Waters song. And then I think the next one is not terrible, which is Dickie Betts' uh, Just Another Love Song. Just Another Love Song, only, only Difference Is, This One Is Mine. It's it's quick, it sort of breezes by, and the rest of this album does not. It's bad. That uh, High Falls took forever to record, it takes forever to listen to, uh, you know, mostly lethargic, uninspired. It's
1: just, it's just a two-chord vamp. that sounds like five other earlier Allman Brothers songs and it's like yeah noodly. you know what it sounds like and, and i don't mean this is an insult to jerry garcia but these guys aren't jerry and they sounds like jerry garcia kind of like guitar and then electric piano or something went terribly wrong with that i don't know what it was
0: it's just a band that sounds like they couldn't be bothered to be better <laughs> that's where they were in their career
2: it, it's horrible it's much worse than than laid back or uh, i actually like greg's live album from this era uh, a lot uh, the greg Almond tour i think is what they named the, the album which is consistent with the bad album names <laughs> that the Allman brothers had uh but i i would say that i think that the muddy waters cover is really good i, I like it a lot i think it's a really clever arrangement it, it gets kind of funky at the piano section and uh and i i think it's good if I had to pick a second best song, I would probably pick the title track, but uh, I don't like it. And <laughs> it, I mean, you guys didn't mention Louisiana Lou and Three Card Monty John. It's, oh, that's terrible! Oh my gosh, it's so bad. It's it's bad enough to be on the next three records. Um, so that's how that's how bad it is. And then like the the last track, does anybody need Dicky Betts to sing them a blues song called Sweet Mama? That's technically a cover from billy joe shaver but why i mean there's no reason for this to happen uh it's it's not good I, and also like high falls it's obviously super pretentious uh the the music is not good and and it's the beginning of dickie playing with guitar tones that are way weaker than he used oh. to i mean compare it especially to to the first two albums like compare it to his tone on uh on liz reed you know, uh, which is, I guess, something of a one-to-one comparison since it's another Dicky Betts jazzy kind of instrumental. And it's night and day. I mean, this is terrible. And uh, it's it's such a fall-off. It's it's bad.
1: Well, I mean, I guess the good news is if you're worried about a further decline in Allman Brothers studio albums, there wouldn't be any further Almond Brothers studio albums for a long time. And, of course, the reason for that is a very unfortunate situation, which is that apparently Greg Allman had a road manager... Uh, And his road manager also happened to be a major drug dealer. It's kind of, I guess, uh, doing a little side gig because maybe the road managing stuff doesn't really pay the bills, especially when you probably have an enormous drug habit yourself. (laughs) Um, And then the feds, of course, were on to him and really desperately wanted to bust him and his supplier. And, of course, they follow that path all the way down to the end. Where does it end? it ends with Greg Allman, who's obviously aware of this, probably buying some of it himself, and they put him in front of a grand jury. Now, the pr- thing about grand juries is it's not like normal court where you can just say, I take the fifth. What happens when they get you in front of a grand jury is that if you lie, your ass is in the stirrup, and they can compel you uh, to testify by granting you immunity. So if they give you immunity uh, and you lie to a grand jury because you are no longer in any legal danger, you can say the truth and you don't have to fear any sort of jail time, then you're going to go to jail for lying to the grand jury. So, what does he do? He puts him in jail. Uh, he puts his road manager in jail. A guy gets 75 years. That's a huge sentence. Could
0: be reduced, I believe, down the road. I'm
1: sure it must have been reduced. Nobody actually serves all 75 of those years. Um, but uh, the fallout from this was huge. I remember Jerry Garcia famously accused Greg Allman of being a narc. Allman never forgave him. Uh, but it wasn't just Jerry Garcia. It was the rest of the band who actually publicly said, like, we can never play with Greg Allman again. Um, that's tough. That's harsh. Uh, and that was, as it seemed, the end of the Allman Brothers. They released a live album, which nobody talks about, called well, Wipe the Oil, Check the Gas, um, or wipe the, wipe the Windows, Check the Gas, Dollar.
0: Uh, You'll anyways. get it. Third time's a charm.
1: <laughs> wipe the Windows, Check the Oil, Dollar Gas. There you go. Yes, we're going to keep all of those flubs in because (laughs) it's just funny to see me fail. It's an
2: improvisational Um, band. It's an improvisational recording.
1: Sometimes you take a chance and you just fail, right? Uh, But the point is is that album doesn't really get a lot of credit. I happen to think it's perfectly cromulent. I think it's a pretty good live album, and it represents the almonds the way that most people actually saw them because... There weren't actually right. that many fans of the Almonds during the Dwayne era. They only blew yeah. up after him. And most of that um, is
0: recorded before there were any. There was a ton of bad blood among the band members. A lot of that's from 72, 73. Exactly, yeah. exactly.
1: Yeah. It's still pretty good stuff, honestly. But
0: I
2: think so, too. I, 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 and I'll tell you, I'm one of the people who gave this, this album shorter shrift than I should have. I, I thought that it was kind of the, the live equivalent of, uh, of Win, Lose, or Draw. It's much, much better than that. It's, it's much more of, the, of the, the vibe that you get on Brothers and Sisters. So I, I, I agree. I think this is a, probably an underrated album.
1: good and i think it's not nearly as good as what follows after the breakup of the allman brothers which is greg allman's collaboration with share a band that he called <laughs> all man and woman which you just cannot beat as a regrettable 1970s band name all man and woman and they oh god it's just almost unbelievable that this album exists they put together an album that i guess was nominally a collaboration uh but it's you know it's a, a more Greg than than share and it's called to the hard way and it's just one of the most regrettable things that's ever been put out under any of the Almond Brothers names andrew actually said that he was going to pretend this didn't exist and i insisted i was going to force him to look into its <laughs> evil eye
2: so there is one of the one of these tracks is on dreams uh i think it's called can you fool and it's still bad and uh right that, that and then i <sighs> Jeff, I tried to listen to this album. Uh, I I couldn't do it. I listened to a single other track. I don't know what it was called. I guess it was probably the first track. Um, I don't care what it was called. It's not good. Did, what year did this come out?
1: Uh, 77, I think. So
2: Greg put out an album as yes, the Greg same, Allman band the same, same year. year. That's yeah. perfectly listenable. I actually like it. It's certainly better than this, and it's way better than, uh, than Win, Lose, or Draw. Dr. John plays on it. Like He's in a pretty good creative place, and the songs are pretty good. Um, it's not it's not like early almond brothers good, but it's not terrible and this and at the same time he's doing this thing with Cher that's just a nightmare. So I I, I I'm not gonna defend it for a second. I, I would prefer to pretend it didn't exist.
0: end of the uh, end of the 70s there's a uh, reunion attempt uh that uh that dickie beck's uh Dicky bats sparks and um alman's in but you have a few guys who are already playing somewhere else right they're pl- i think they're playing a different band
2: yeah chuck and and lamar had formed a uh kind of a jazz rock thing called Sea level which is a pun on chuck level levels chuck Lavell's name mm-hmm.
0: um i i mean just puns always make great bands. yeah
2: yeah really good but they were they were a talented group and You mean they like were all man and woman <laughs> yes <laughs>
0: but, yeah, but they yeah so they would not come back they were happier doing music they liked so they brought in uh, a guy named david goldflies to play bass uh, they bring in a second guitarist dan toler first time they've had two guitars in the lineup both those guys are playing in a band called great southern with greg dickie with no, with, no, with dickie, dickie. okay yeah. with Dicky betts so they've got the lineup together. Tom Dowd is back to produce his first time, I think, since 1971. And here it is, 1979. By all accounts, <laughs> the sessions for this album went very well for Enlightened Rogues, which is a, uh, a, a, a portion of an old quote from from Dwayne. Uh, and this album is, I think... There, there are three albums here in 79, 80, and eighty one. So you got Enlightened Rogues, you got Reach for the Sky in nineteen eighty, you got Brothers of the Road in eighty one. Let's three. put it
1: this way: only one of these actually deserves any real discussion, and this is that. This one. is
0: the one. Um, it's loud, it's brash, it's hard rocking. It is it is seemingly an attempt to sort of throw things back to well, nineteen seventy one or so, the last time Tom Dowd produced. Because you do have those two guitars that are playing side by side. Now, Dan Toler is no Dwayne Allman. They're not quite recreating what they did years ago, but I, I the way I would describe this is Enlightened Rogues is the best album they could have possibly, possibly made at this time, being down so many members with a bunch of replacements, haven't played together in years, it's a new era, it's 1979. They actually had some commercial success with this album. It went to number nine on the charts. Their second highest single in the band's history is here called Crazy Love. It's not great. It's not terrible. Terrible would come, but it's not great. But I think there are some songs here that aren't bad. Uh, there's one called Can't Take It With You, which is a pretty rugged rocker. Uh, again, the percussion element there is really strong. The instrumental here that Dickie wrote called Pegasus is pretty good. Yes. Um there's one called uh, Try It One More Time, which is, I think, the only time that I know of in which there are co-lead vocals. Greg and, and Dickie alternate the vocals trying to portray different sides of this, of this relationship. The solos are pretty darn good on Try It One More Time. It, this is not embarrassing. It's also not a five-star album. I Again, I just go back. I, I think my my single-line review is it's probably the best thing they could have done at this time given all the circumstances.
1: evaluate this one after I had dismissed it in our early show notes and of course, you know, all the later Almond stuff, I'm just like, I don't know. I don't have much time for it. But I went back and I listened to this one and I think you're right about it. I think it's telling to me, like it's the first side that's mostly stacked with the best stuff. Mm-hmm. You got the two singles and Crazy Love and Can't Take with you. You know what I really like is I like their cover of that old uh, little Willie John song, Need Your Love So Bad. I actually knew that long before I ever heard the almonds version of it from the Fleetwood Mac Peter Green era Fleetwood Mac crazy strings and blues mashup version uh, that was like their I think second or third single it's really good um, uh, it's really bonkers for 1968 um, <laughs> but I, I, I really like this version too I don't think it, I think of the song itself is just so good that you can't really mess it
4: up I
3: need someone's hand to lead me through the
1: Just Ain't Easy by Almond. Um, that's another really good song at the end of the record, or nearabouts. But yeah, we're talking about a record of Minor Pleasures. It sounds like a facsimile of something that you'd hear on the first album or Idlewild South or something like that. It's not classic Allman Brothers sound, nor is it, however, the Arista years, which we will of course <laughs> it, now sadly it, have to discuss. In a way,
0: and, in a way, probably. Their success <coughs> with enlightened rogues, both commercially and artistically, right? Being at least something you'd say, "Well, that, that doesn't sound too bad, probably harm them, because it got them on the radar screen mm. of a guy like Clive Davis at Arista who said, "You know what? Allman Brothers, these guys are great. they got a name. We could market these guys. We can yeah. make them big hit. We, we could make some big hits with them here in 1980 and 1981.
2: I do think that, that enlightened rogues it, I agree with you guys, it is better than I remembered. Um, I kind of I hate Crazy Love. Um, mm. I, I really hate that song. I, I don't like Dicky's Slide playing on it. I don't understand why Dicky considered it important to keep playing Slide. I mean, I guess <laughs> it's because he was in the Almond Brothers, and somebody's got to do it.
1: Well, I mean, but, also because, like, in when in a live setting, it was just expected. Yeah. So you might as well do it on the records, I,
2: too. That's probably right. And so I think there's too much slide on this record overall. Um, that's the biggest hit. It, it, it is terrible. I will say Pegasus is way better than High Falls. I don't think it's very good, but it's way better than, than High Falls. I, I think that the best two tracks are probably Can't Take It With You and Just Ain't Easy. so. as we get into these later years even if the recording is just as bad on Greg's songs if it's a song Greg is singing or especially if it's one that he wrote which does get fewer and farther between here I mean this is he only wrote one song for this record they do tend to be the better songs and I mean I think you're just living with Dickie as a shot caller in this band Greg never had the personality to really direct a band even in the late years it's Warren Haynes who's running the show and at this point it's Dickie who's running the show I think that well Scott, you you and I were talking about this yeah, earlier in right. the week. Dickie got Peter principled. I mean, he wound up being the shot caller in the band that was it was never supposed to be that way. He wasn't even supposed to be the the backup. That was supposed to be Barry. <laughs> and uh and so Dickie's in charge and he's doing his best to hold it all together. But it's I think it's just too much for him. Um and and the, the last thing I'll say here is this band this this album's called Enlightened Rogues. This is I guess a phrase that Dwayne would use to refer to the band. You know, we're just Enlightened Rogues. And uh, probably kind of scratching is that Dwayne had, he was, he was like a big Tolkien guy and he sort of probably liked to think of them as vagabonds or, you know, sort of uh, living out some adventure. Um, but it, it does just speak to how Dwayne is still in their heads between the slide, the slide guitar that I'm complaining about and the name of the of the record. Um, these guys are still, you know, eight years later working out what to do without Dwayne and their band.
1: Yeah, and I don't think they really good, come up with a good answer in the next part of their career. So, uh, as I was joking in our pre-show notes, has there ever been any band <clears throat> that could look back, particularly legacy rock act, classic rock act, that would ever look back and say, boy, you know what, the Arista years of our career, those were a real highlight. <laughs> think of all of the artists who played, went to Clive Davis's Arista records, whether it was the Almonds or the Kinks or... I think it was Andrew who pointed out Aretha Franklin also recorded some regrettable albums for them, um, and they're all garbage. I mean, almost universally, there isn't. I I, I actually looked <clears throat> at the stable of artists that recorded for Arista, and it was almost staggering to me how like all of them are bad. There's I can't think of a good one. If there's somebody out there in the audience who's listening, who can think of a great early '80s Arista Records, you know, album by any artist at all, I want to hear it. And you, know, you guys can come at me on Twitter. Let me know because I think it's like an almost prodigal creation of trash. And I blame Clive Davis, the record label head, for it. He was one of these guys who was obsessed with commercial success, pushing the new pop trends. And he did the same for the Almonds. Now the Almonds are always going to be fundamentally a blues and
2: you know blues rock
1: based act. I don't know how you turn them into Madonna.
2: Not going to stop is... them from getting a guitar though.
1: No, oh God, so we have these two albums, Reach for the Sky and Brothers of the Road, which I just, I got nothing, I just want to just make fun of the covers of these things and move on. If you guys got serious things to say about them, you do your best, but I just have nothing good to add, and I'll point out, this was the end of the road for the band for nearly a decade.
2: I mean, yeah, let's just treat these two things together, there's no reason to to parse them. Um, I guess in terms of of covers, the only thing I can say is that the, the Reach for the Sky, it seems like it's a direct response to Toys in the Attic. Like, it, it, it clearly is kind of trying to go for the same, like, nostalgia vibe or something, and it is stupid. Um, I mean, gun to my head, I guess I could tell you that I... I, I the, the track off of, uh, of Reach for the Sky that made it onto Dreams is Angeline. It probably is the closest thing to a decent track on this... The only, the only other observation I'll make is that uh, Greg co-writes a bunch on it with Dan Toler, and this is the first of two times that Dickey would bring a guy into the Allman Brothers, and then the guy winds up being a Greg guy. Hmm. And, uh, and Toler wound up playing on, uh, on Greg's late 80s um, uh, relatively commercially successful records that he did as a solo artist. I guess it was the Greg Allman Band, but functionally a solo artist. And then Brothers of the Road, it's, just a,
0: it's a horrible, horrible, horrible album it was uh, made with a producer the guy who brought you sticks and the doobie brothers it it shows <laughs> the, the single straight from the heart sounds like essentially a, a doobie brothers song yeah not well, even the good doobie brothers no yeah like the, the bad, the ones. bad doobie it, brothers. it
2: predates jump but it's almost like it's uh, it's almost like their attempt at a, at a song like jump i mean it's this synthy yeah you know, poppy thing that makes zero sense for them there's this song on here called the judgment that is embarrassing and it, i guess it gets at something dickie said you, you jeff you talked earlier about how uh, greg didn't like being called a jam band he also didn't like being called a southern rock band He's, he, his his beef with that was that rock and roll is a southern art form to begin with and so right. you know he said the four kings of rock and roll are uh you know little richard from georgia elvis from mississippi jerry lee lewis from louisiana and chuck berry from M- uh, Missouri, but but St. Louis, you know, a, a town that that is at least half southern, and uh, uh, Dickey's objection was he he didn't like being called southern. He thought that it was like a demeaning term. He said, "Why can't we just be called a, a prog rock band from the South or something?" <laughs> and the, the judgment is uh, a in High Falls and some other other stuff. It there it's, it's just
1: prog rock. Yeah, and listen, I'm a, I'm a huge prog rock fan. I mean, like I'm the guy whose favorite band of all time is Genesis, mind you, but. This is not what I want from this
2: band. <laughs> it's terrible, and so that's that's all I can say about it. It's I think it it's just two records in a row of of basically a hundred percent misses. I, I I as I mentioned, I, I think that the songs Greg sings and and mm-hmm. writes they're better, but that's like uh, damning with frank, faint praise because they're bad too.
1: It's like saying being clinically dead is bad, but you know having a pulse and being a vegetable is better. <laughs> <laughs> because th- th- that's kind of the level that we're talking about on these records, and, and predictably, it was the end of the road for the band. And Jamo um,
2: leaves J- in here too. We should mention before so, the last one. Before right? right. And
1: man, if Jamo goes, man, you just know like something's wrong. Exactly. That guy's in a lot of ways. It's like the rhythmic heart of this band. You know, just like you know, you know, Butch is is, is sort of like you know keeps the time, but Jamo's the one who's just going crazy all around him and and making them all funky. Um, and he was just like, I-, I got nothing to play on this. You do not want to have anything to do with it. So the band's defunct for, you know, eight, nine years. Greg Allman goes his own way. Dickie Betts goes his own way. They have solo careers of I a mean, little repute. I don't really think we need to note them. Um,
0: you, what you, actually, you do know one Allman solo song, which is the title track from I'm No Angel. That was a pretty big song, right? It was. 86, so you probably know that one.
1: Yeah. I've never liked it, uh, but, you know... That's you know, if you guys disagree, you know no, no, it's not
2: it's, I don't think it's good, but it was successful, and it was it was a hit, yeah and 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 I think he sold a fair number of records with the follow up album uh before the bullets fly too there and and again, he's got Dan Toller playing with him, which is just funny to me, uh because Dicky brought him in and and he's gonna do the same thing with Warren Haynes later and just like steal an ally, but uh, <laughs> uh, they're I don't think they're particularly good, and so. Go, go ahead and take us out uh, out of the 80s. What,
1: what, what revives their career, actually, is, of all things, a boxed set. This has happened to some bands uh, a couple of times, actually. Uh, as I mentioned right at the beginning of the show, the Dreams box set, which is one of my early introductions to the Almonds, uh, was a huge success. And it's still, to this day, just a great way to get into the most important era of the band. Great way to start, if you want. Um, so that comes out. Everybody loves it. The band starts thinking to themselves, well, hey, you know what? Maybe there's some appetite for some almonds after all. They decide to get back together. Um, They've got a slightly different lineup here. And I think the key thing to say is that they have a second lead guitarist, a guy by the name of Warren Haynes, who I think I've frankly not got much great to say about this reunited version of the almonds. I think they were a really credible live act, actually entertaining as heck when you listen to their live albums. But as a studio act, not much does much for me. I will say that Warren Haynes, while he's not Dwayne Allman, he brings a lot to the Reunited Allman Brothers band. And he's probably, for me, given that I've known all the rest of these guys for so long, the most exciting member of the group. Uh, The most exciting addition. He brings a new element to them. And I think that their first Reunited album, Seven Turns, is probably the best thing that they did during this era i know that you might pick a different one andrew but i don't know what you guys think about this one i think it's it's actually if i'm going to pick anything from the from the post reunited era this is the one
0: I think Seven Turns is all right. I think both, the, the both of these first two albums that they reunite with Seven Turns in nineteen ninety, and then Shades of Two Worlds in ninety one. We can are, take them both. Yeah. Are, are are all right. They're all right. I I um I wrote a note here. about, about half of this stuff sounds like if you took Stevie Ray Vaughan and and merged him with the Georgia Satellites, and about yeah the other, the other half of that stuff sounds like uh what Kenny Wayne Shepherd would sound like at about six or seven years from this point, point. and it's just really. To me, you know, nondescript, uh, competently played. Um, I, I, Warren Haynes is really good. I mean, he really is. And so those those two guitars being back as a feature of the band is is a big positive. And it, and it's not embarrassing. And there are some 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 interesting things going on um, with uh, "Let Me Ride" on Seven Turns." Haynes and Betts really trade those leads. They're really nice. On,
1: I like the instrumental, too, that True Gravity is mm-hmm. it's Betts and Haynes collaborating again. I mean, that that to me is, 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 a, is you know, it's a lot better in terms of, you know, I guess sort of semi-proggy, but not really, but uh, it's a lot better than
4: High Falls.
0: Uh, kind of a Bird on, on uh, or Kind of Bird on Shades of Two Worlds is this sort of jazz improvisa- improv- improvisation sort of instrumental. <coughs> again, a Betts and Haynes song there. Uh, end of the Line from that album, again, pretty good. Um, I, I, I like the next one more we'll come back to that in a second uh, let Andrew get in here, but uh, most of this is just again competently done They're not breaking in a new ground uh, it's, it's monochromatic in, in in some ways when you go from song to song it, It's hard to distinguish one from another um, but 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 played played well and And obviously enough to, to draw a little bit of new interest in the band
2: yeah, I I i more or less echo what Scott's saying about this yeah. um the I, I don't consider many of these tracks on these first two uh third era almonds uh uh records. I don't consider them particularly memorable. I I might say that the title track is my favorite off of the first one, but I it's, it's not a, it's not like a favorite Allman Brothers song for me by any means. Um Warren joining and, and, and uh, to a lesser extent Alan Woody, Alan Woody joining. Uh, it, it is a, a new epoch in the band's you know kind of evolution. Uh, Warren is the closest thing to a true hired gun, you know, virtuoso uh, that they've had to this point. Um, uh, certainly a less inventive guitar player than Dwayne, but a really versatile one. He had been in David Allen Coe's band uh, before he was in Dickie's band. Uh, and Government Mule. <laughs> right, and then later on like in, I think it's in 95, he and Woody start Government Mule. Right. with Matt Abbs who I think they had been playing with with Dickie. I think <laughs> Dick, Matt had been Dickey's drummer in the 80s. Um and then they put Government Mule together and and if we assume that that's the closest thing to sort of Warren's, you know, artistic happy place, that's a power trio. Eventually, uh, adding an organ, but but it does kind of account for why some of this stuff is sort of generic blues rock. Uh, Not Mm -hmm. not that government mule is. I think government mule is a more interesting band than these first two uh, '90s records. And I I guess I think on uh, what's the second one called, "Shades of Two Worlds." Mm -hmm. I do think "Kind of Bird" is probably the best instrumental since "Jessica." I think. (laughs) Have come on in my kitchen, a Robert Johnson song, an old blues song. Um, it's a pretty good recording. It's not, it's not earth shattering, but it's another callback to Dwayne. I'm sure the reason they did that is because Dwayne did that with Delaney and Bonnie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, Dwayne was one of these guys who was sort of an honorary member of Delaney and Bonnie's band. You know, he 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 would play with them when he was around or whatever. And uh, it's it's a uh, just it's one more example of them trying to find a way to stay connected to Dwayne.
0: The one record from this era that I think is actually pretty good is Where It All Begins, which is 1994. And what I'd say about this is one, the, the Tom Dowd got him on stage they put him on a, sound, I guess, Burt sound soundstage, set everything up they played it live as a unit I think that shows, I think that helps uh, and I think this is the one from this sort of trio of records in the early 90s in which there is um, attempts at some new sounds. Um, at least, at least, uh, you know, there is, um, a desire to perhaps do something that sounds a little different. This is the one that has no one to run with, which I mentioned previously. Uh, I heard an awful lot on the radio. It's this kind of locomotive rhythm. It's a Dickie bet song. Um, I, I could have sworn there was previously a song in their catalog called Mean Woman Blues, but no, it's here <laughs> there, 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 on this There's record. evil
1: woman blues and <laughs> right. like, yeah, hungry. Black-hearted yeah, like,
0: woman. Yeah. No. Yeah, yeah, But if you're looking for the Mean Woman Blues, it's here on Where It All Begins. Um, uh, there's yeah, one called mean All Night woman. Train, which Chuck Lavelle co-wrote, which makes me think it's a really old song. Right.
2: No, or I don't think so. Did he come I, back I, and do it? No, it's a co-write with Warren. And, uh, and no, so he would hang, he he hung around a little bit. He was not in the band. We should have mentioned on the first of these records, on Seven Turns, they have another piano player, Johnny Neal. They um, kick him out after that. Yeah, it's not very memorable playing mean, him. It's not, a, it's fine that he's not in. It. it doesn't really change anything. Uh, but, but Lavelle was still kind of a friend. And he, and you can find live recordings of, of him sitting in and playing this song and others with them up till the very end. Um, I agree with, with Scott about about of these three, I consider these to be kind of a unit. I do think this is the strongest by a lot. I agree mm-hmm. it's got some newer sounds, no one to run with is kind of a Bo Diddley thing. Mm-hmm. I think All Night Train is the first one that kinda gets a little bit back to when Greg had some spunk and some funkiness to him. Um and I think it's uh I, I think that's that's probably my favorite track on the record. I kinda hate Soul Shine, which became mm-hmm. a staple. It Warren plays it with everybody he can. I mean, he's recorded it like 10 different ways, 10 different times. I
0: I, I think it's a really... Uh, I,
1: that song irks me so much. It's so I, syrupy. I, yeah.
0: It's terrible. Yeah. The, the one song on here I actually will tell you I think is great. I think it's a great song is uh, Sailing Across the Devil's Sea, which is uh, um, uh, uh, a, a Haynes and Woody and... Um, Jack Pearson. Pearson song. So, yeah. And it's got just this nasty riff the percussion harkens back to the old days with butch trucks and, and jmo really doing their thing here jmo's back by the way
2: right uh <laughs> and oh and i'm sorry to, i don't want to interrupt this except to say how do you solve a problem that can't be solved with two drummers you hire a third drummer so mark quinones joins the band here i mean i'm just going to tell you i don't think there's anything wrong with the guy's musician but i think it, it was i mean I, I think adding a percussionist has, has actually muddied up this band ever since. <laughs> so for the last 25 years of the band's history. It's
1: so crowded sound-wise. It bothers
2: me. me the whole time, you know, and, and all the live stuff they did after this. It, having the third percussionist there, it's so self-indulgent. It's nothing against the guy. He's good. And, uh, and, and I think on some tracks, as you were, you were getting at, Scott, before I so rudely interrupted, uh,
0: it, it can work, but for the most part, it's a problem. Um, yeah sailing cross the Devil Sea is I think the best track from any of these three albums from this early 90s era I, it is the one track I would say is genuinely great from this time period
1: what do we think about the last Allman Brothers studio album, which doesn't come out until another decade later. They do a lot of live recording. Uh, and then the last one is an album called Hit in the Note. And I'll say the one thing that you could say when you look at the credits for this album uh, that might seem vaguely auspicious is that finally Greg Allman is doing a lot more writing than he had been recently. He still doesn't write everything. By the way, Dickie Betts is say, gone. Cer-
2: certainly more than Dicky wrote for this one. Well,
1: yeah, <laughs> right. Because Dickie Betts is gone from the band. His last album was... Uh, you know, the, the last one. And, uh, you know, obviously there's drama there. It's not worth getting into. Uh, but Allman is there and he's writing usually with Haynes. Um, I know a lot of people like this album a lot. Uh, you know, a lot of Almonds fans say like, oh, this is actually secretly the best later Almonds era album. I don't hate it. I think I just don't find it to be very inspired. I think Scott said something in our pre-show notes. About how, like, you know, so much of the Almonds post reunion, Mach 3, whatever you want to call it, era stuff feels like it's so sort of predictable and sort of pedestrian. That it feels almost like it's an, you know, an insult in a way to the memory of Dwayne, which may be a little harsh. Scott has a way of being <laughs> harsh. He's so nice. He's so nice on the show, but he can express some very. Salty I, I think the phrase was
2: disrespectful. Right? I think he said it was yeah. disrespectful. So I, I'll talk about this one a little bit. I mean, we're yeah. just real, real quick in the in terms of the the lineup changes. They kicked Dickie out in like the spring or something of two thousand. Jimmy tricky problem. Is that what
1: it was? Something like I
2: that, think he right? was, I think he was also still using cocaine to some degree. And I, I believe that the, the deal here was that they considered it. Uh, I, I think Dickie was a jerk. I mean, I think Dickey was kind of a jerk anyway, but, uh, but when he's drunk, he was, you know, probably a particularly mean. Drunk, mean. Yeah. And, um, and I think he was also using some cocaine and I believe that one of the problems here. So, so first of all, at the time Dickie's kicked out, Derek trucks is the second guitar player, uh, uh, That's Bruce's son, right? Uh, it's his nephew. Yeah, nephew. nephew. His nephew. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and and Haines was gone. Haynes and Woody had left full time for Government Mule yeah. in like '97, I think. Mostly, I mean, they wanted to go and be their own people, but I think also they were kind of done being around Dicky, and Dicky who Dicky had brought them in. Uh, but they were they were done with Dickey, and so they're doing Government Mule. Jack Pearson comes in. Jack Pearson's a Nashville guy. He's a fantastic guitar player. I actually saw him fill in for Warren Haynes at one of the live shows I saw in, like, 2005 at Pine Knob. Um, he's a magnificent guitar player, but he had tinnitus, so it's kind of a problem to play, you know, really loud music for right. your career. So he had to kind of get out of the touring thing. Uh, Derek Trucks comes in in, like, 99 and plays with Dickie for a couple of years. Dickey gets kicked out. Jimmy Herring replaces him for a minute, but like just the summer. And, and essentially they go to Warren Haynes and, and beg him to come back to the band in like early 2001. And Alan Woody's just died. Warren is, it's kind of a reasonable spot to ask him to come back in. But when he comes back in, he, he essentially is the band leader. And, and so for the last 15 or 16 years that the band exists, which is the longest that they were a stable lineup ever, uh, Warren is basically the band leader. And so he co-writes and, and clearly is really the producer of this album hitting the note. I think that it's better than the three uh, late Dickey era uh, albums. Uh, Maybe, maybe I could get talked into thinking that uh, uh, where it all begins is, is it's equal or or maybe it's superior, but this is also a live in studio deal. I think at least that that's certainly how it sounds. I think there's a few good tracks and a few pretty terrible tracks. I I can't tell you how disappointed I and My college buddies were to, to, uh, stay up to watch the almonds on i think on conan uh or, i don't know when some late night show and they played the high cost of low living and it's just mm. a boring song i can't believe that that's total malpractice to play that on tv uh it's not there good were
1: far better tracks they could have chosen oh, from this to do
2: completely agree um and then like Old before my time won some like jammy award or something for vocal perform- <laughs> it's not a good song i don't it's not you know it's 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 self-indulgent too it's not good but I do think just a couple of tracks to call out I think Who to Believe is a really good track that's probably my favorite track on this album Line. The opening track is is probably that's my second. The what
1: I, that's the one I would have played live on Conan if it was
2: me. Yeah, right? yeah, I think that's a pretty good track. Um, I think their their Rolling Stones cover of Heart of Stone is worthwhile, which not every cover of you know one of the two greatest bands in the history of rock and roll is worthwhile, but I think that one happens to be.
1: That then, surprises me because I really actually don't like the original at all. Huge Stones fan, never liked that song. I think the Almonds version is actually an upgrade.
2: Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I think it's pretty good. And then the rest of it, I think, is is all pretty mediocre. I mean, I, I hate a couple yeah. of these songs. Like,
0: Ma- Maydell is... Maydell is really... Uh, Maydell, when they played on a late night, are probably the two least interesting things here.
2: Yeah, it's horrible. I think this, the song Desdemona is, like, the most self-indulgent thing. I mean, first of all, using... It reminds me of this uh, Malcolm the Middle episode when... I don't remember why but Malcolm's mom is like talking to some kids who are moving into their freshman dorm in college and she's telling them for some reason, like, no, now is the time to be pretentious. And so one of them says like, you mean I should rename myself Antigone? And she's like, if not now, when? And that's kind of how this song is to me. It's like, pseudo jazzy it's kind, you know it's like nine and a half minutes long and it's called desdemona which no one has ever been named except in the shakespeare play so right. i i think it's pretty terrible i don't like the instrumental very much i don't like the acoustic songs very much but i do like a few songs on here and and derrick truck's you know this is the only studio album he's on the guy is a fantastic musician uh so listening to him play even on songs that aren't great is usually worthwhile
1: I mean, the album suffers from CDitis, right? You know, 75 minutes long. You didn't need it to have it be that long. We didn't need 12 minutes of instrumental illness, or whatever it was. <laughs> or 12 you know? seconds of it. Yeah, I mean, it's all, yes, it's workman like. It's good. There are some, some, some nice tracks on it. But, you know, it's not an embarrassing end of the band. But it's also very clear that, like, you know, this stuff is, you know,. Sometimes our episodes have these sort of sad codas where it's like, well, let's just talk gently about the later stuff because it isn't nearly as good as when they were in their great years. And we all know that that was, that was more or less done after either maybe 1976 or maybe even 1979 if you're feeling you know kind. Um, but that doesn't take anything away from the greatness of the Allman Brothers band, of Dwayne, of Greg, of Dickie, Barry, and Jimo and Butch. I mean – these guys, they had a sound and it was a unique sound and at their best. And there's so much evidence out there on record of their best. It was for real. The one last thing I want to say before we wrap up is, you know, Andrew, you and I are big fans of early live era almonds. If we had to recommend one non at Fillmore East album to people who might otherwise want to go hear some other stuff from that era that they hadn't heard already that's been commercially released, what would your pick be?
2: I would probably say the the A&R Studios recording from, I think, August. August August 71. Yeah, so about a month before Dwayne dies. uh, It includes this little um, uh, tribute to King Curtis in You Don't Love Me, which I think you can find on some other recordings, but not of the same quality. Uh, So there's a little Soul Serenade interlude in in that recording. And and that recording of that song, I think, is my favorite anyway. Dwayne's playing on it is, I think, even better than the Live at Fillmore East version. Uh, so for the, for the audio quality, that's probably it. The the live at Stony Brook is cool because it's got it's the highest quality recording out there of a live Blue Sky, and so that's it's kind of historically important to Almonds fans uh, for that reason. So that might be the second one to to suggest. I
1: think for me, uh, I will pick uh, the. Early Fillmore East recording from February of 1970. It was recorded during their run with the Grateful Dead. Back then, it's been released a couple of different ways. Uh, first of all, it's just you know I think the way you find it now is as like as bears, uh, you know, board journals or something like that, audio journals or something like that. But it it's from February 11th, 12th, 13th, 14th. That run of shows they played then. It's a compilation. And listen, I'm just a sucker for really long versions of Mountain Jam, and this is like an early 30-minute take on it, and they're just going to town, and it's obvious that the audience has never heard anything like this before in their lives, and they're just completely taken aback by it. It's beautiful. The other one I might be is uh, Live at Ludlow Garage, which is from a couple months later, April 70. We're still in the very early Almonds era, uh, which I like. You get some rarities. You get Dwayne going up there to sing Dimples. You get, uh, you know, I'm going to move to the outskirts of town. You get a great take on Hoochie Coochie, man. You get this very long, slower, much less intense version of Statesboro Blues. And then, of course, at the end of it, 44 minutes of Mountain Jam. So I'm on board for that. Uh, I love the early, early almond stuff live, and thankfully there is enough of it out there to satisfy somebody who really wants to go and find more about this band.
0: And there we are. It is the Political Beats look at the Almond Brothers Band. We thank our guest Andrew Fink, who is a state representative here in the state of Michigan, the 58th District. We come to the part of the show where all of us give us you, the listener, the two albums you should own five songs you really should hear from a very lengthy uh career of the Almond brothers band and we start with our guest so andrew fink your two albums your five songs to recommend
2: so for for me the first album is is easy just because of how i got uh, how i came to this band eat a peach uh is is the one i i could just not do without and if i were gonna uh tell somebody to to get a taste of the almonds i think this is about as as comprehensive as you can as you can get um I I'm, I'm torn uh for the second one um I, I guess I'll say Wild South uh but I I think you you could be forgiven for for disagreeing on that uh but but as a complete studio record you you get the Dickey songwrites uh song songwriting credits on that one uh you get Fantastic Plane um and uh and if if you're going to pick one of the first two I don't think you can go wrong but I, I think that's probably what I do and your five songs um Statesboro Blues from Live at Fillmore East uh for you know for for in memory of Elizabeth Reed I think I'm going to also say the Live at Fillmore East version although again I could forgive you for cho- choosing the Idlewild South version um Ain't Wasting Time is probably my favorite single Allman Brothers song which is strange because Dwayne is the the key to this band for me and he's not on it but uh again it he was, he was so clearly in their heads for that one that it sort of makes sense. Um, I'll also say Blue Sky off of Vita Peach. And uh, I think I'll say Dreams for my fifth one, the the studio version of Dreams.
0: All right, so for uh, my two albums, I think Idlewild South is the best studio album the band ever produced. So that is certainly one of my two. And then I, I mean, I, I think you can't go wrong with at philmore East to to hear these guys live to hear Dwayne live, and uh, and the way those guys put those songs together the, the the lengthy solos the lengthy songs but again which which never seem to be as long as as you think they might be right <laughs> it just everything flows very nicely very smoothly uh, song wise from that first album I I like Black Hearted Woman a lot uh, not to be confused with uh, what Mean Woman Blues or yeah. Different song. Um, give me, uh, give me "Whipping Post," but the live version, I guess, from Phil Moore East. Uh, I think "Blue Sky" is on the list. Uh, "Wasted Words," and I guess I will put on "Can't Lose What You Never Had." I I, I think it's a tremendous arrangement and the last truly, truly outstanding song the band would release. Those are my five. Jeff, over to you.
1: Okay, so I'm going to try to make sure there's no overlap with what I'm choosing here. So my two albums will be the debut album, the Allman Brothers Band, which I think is is really perfect. As I said, there's a reason they put every single song of this onto Dwayne's boxed set. Um, And then, of course, at Fillmore East. We all agree, it's one of the great live albums of all time, every moment. And get the deluxe version, for God's sake. Don't get the one that's edited. Get the one that has the whole concert on it. There are like a billion different ways you can do that. Do that. For my five songs, I'm going to choose songs that aren't on either of those two albums. So I will start with Midnight Rider from Idlewild South. And I'll also go with Barry Oakley, just killing it, on Hoochie Coochie Man. Just great blues cover, almost definitive in its own way. Then I'm going to go with Ain't Wasting Time The no More. I, I agree with Andrew. It might not be my exact favorite song by the Almonds, but it's really high up there. It's taking my top five for a reason. And then from Brothers and Sisters, I'm gonna, my last two will come from there. I'll say Come and Go Blues, which I think is very underrated. I think it's one of Greg's best songs. And then Jessica, which I think is I it's not, it's not a little more regimented as an instrumental than In Memory of Elizabeth Reed. But I think it may be my favorite Dickie Betts instrumental, just simply because it has such a joy to it and because I think Chuck Lavelle just... Hmm. Adds so much to it in terms of its tone. I think maybe it's gotten played on the radio so much that, that some people don't realize it, it, you know the, the spontaneity and the joy of it. You know, has, has faded away over time. But God, it, it reminds me of the bopper. So I mean, how can I how can I say no to that? I love that song.
0: are the political beats look at the allman brothers band with our guest 58th district state representative for hillsdale and branch counties here in michigan andrew frank andrew thanks for being our very first actual sitting serving politician to guest on political beats thank you guys i enjoyed it uh jeff i also have news for you i, I was looking at the uh the list this will be officially when it is posted episode number one hundred of Political Beats, it'll say right there, episode 100, Allman Brothers Band. There we are. We've got the triple digits.
1: It's criminal that we've been allowed to go on this long.
0: I'm surprised someone doesn't stop us, quite frankly. Try Jeff on Twitter, at EsotericCD. My name is Scott Bertram. Find me on Twitter, at Scott Bertram. Remember, patreon.com slash beats to support the show, help it stay <clears throat> ad-free, different tiers of support. Check them out there, patreon.com slash political beats now the part of the program where we say thank you personally to some of our patreon supporters for being with us through these months simon goldstone sam potter anthony velasquez richard anderson chris coro brian roach susan brown brian riley cj box charles evans glenn hibbert and vin just vin Thank all of you and everyone else who has been part of our Patreon family. Feel free to invite others to uh, to join us. Patreon.com slash political beats. We also ask you to subscribe for new episodes through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, tune in, or go right to nationalreview.com, click on podcast, and find more. We're on Facebook, also on Twitter, at political underscore beats. Join the conversation there. This has been a presentation of National Review. This is Political Beats.